my fellow Westorians. Greetings. I'm Aziz. With me is Ashea. And this is Valar Reredis, where we look for the foreshadowing we missed, new depth in the world building, a better understanding of the plot lines, greater familiarity with the characters, and more fun than you can fit in all seven hills. This is really cool. We're doing this one public. It's the first Valar Reredis, other than our Game of Thrones wrap-up episode, where we're going public. And also, it's the first one on a Monday. And there'll be occasionally more episodes on Mondays. In fact, two weeks from now, the, the Halloween weekend, we're doing, well, I guess it's technically the weekend before Halloween, but the week of Halloween, the Monday, twenty, the 28th, is the next time we're doing this. It's two weeks from today. And, well, it's kind of neat looking at this chapter. Shay and I were laughing a lot as we prepared for this one because there's just so many good quotes, so many funny moments. And, well, let's get through a couple of really quick announcements and deal with what we've got today, which is this is part three of 12, A Clash of Kings, which is going to include Arya 3, the one where Arya sees wolves, a.k.a. the gang witnesses the bad news about the Riverlands. Davos 1, the gang burns the gods, a.k.a. the one with Flightbringer. <laughs> Flightbringer. It looks better than it sounds. F Lightbringer, Flightbringer, kind of misleading. I, I like F Lightbringer, F Lightbringer. <laughs> it's like F Society for Mr. Robot. <laughs> Theon 1, the one where Theon returns home, a.k.a. the Iron Gang prepares for war with the Wolf Gang. Daenerys 1, the gang hits the Red Waste, a.k.a. the one with the City of Bones. Mm. John 2, the gang visits White Tree, a.k.a. the one where all the wildlings are missing. And Arya 4, the one where Arya saves Jockin, a.k.a. the gang kills Yorin. Yeah, and also uh, next week, we're doing seven chapters instead of six. And you might say, well, hey, Aziz, why didn't you just do four chapters for that first uh, Clash of Kings episode so that you could do four, then six, 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 all the way till the end instead of three six six seven six six well the reason is is because i wanted all the blackwater chapters to line up in one episode so all five of the blackwater battle episodes are in one episode near the end and there there's at the end of that there's one danny chapter as well but if we did it a different way it would be kind of like part of the blackwater the next week we finish it so i kind of just wanted all those to line up so if it worked out okay with uh, the schedule just being a slight tweak to make that work so I'm glad we're doing that. So glad to see everybody here today. Uh, questions, you can ask us questions for each chapter. We'll handle questions at the end of each chapter. The Q&A portion comes at the end of each one. And I was doing a little extra research on uh, lengths of chapters. Um, you know, there's word counts, which we've put out before, page counts we've put out before. But I never really put up the audiobook times. That's something that I think is interesting. They line up pretty well. For example, you know, page counts and audiobook lengths are going to be pretty consistent with each other. But it's kind of fun to take note of the longest and shortest chapters just for the heck of it. The longest one this time is Theon. It's 5832. That's the second longest chapter in the book. It's quite long. And following that, we have Davos 1, which is 47 minutes, 43 seconds, which is pretty long also. Daenerys' chapter is 40 minutes, 34 seconds. And then the two Arya chapters together are only a little longer than the one Theon chapter. Combined there, uh, it's a little over uh, an hour. And so they're 21 minutes and, and 40 minutes. And then the John chapter is only 17 minutes and 12 seconds, which is, I think, the third shortest in the whole book. But 
long and short, these chapters have a lot you can say about them. Uh, it t- tends to be the long ones you have to, we have the most to say about, obviously, but that's not always true. Sometimes when there's a lot of action, there's less to describe on our point. George handles the battle so well, there's not as much analysis when it's just, you know, swords, you know, cutting people's heads off. <laughs> there's not as much to say about that. So, and in that, you know, from that example, well, we have Arya's second chapter, which is longer than her first, but a lot of it's battle. And, you know, we have a lot to say about that chapter, but not a whole lot to say about the actual battle part. Um, And if you're interested in listening to the books, you know, I have listened to them a lot of times. I don't know how many, I don't know how many times I've read them either, but we have, you can get two free uh, downloads of uh, an audio book from audible.com. If you go to our website, and maybe you'll enjoy listening to the books if cat, reading them is uh, regularly is too much of a time sink. Maybe you can combine listening to A Song of Ice and Fire with some other activity like, well, yard work, cleaning the house, cat boxes. That's what I do. <laughs> All right. Let's go straight to Aria 3, the one where Aria sees wolves, a.k.a. the gang witnesses the bad news about the Riverlands. That, of course, is a reference to Catlin 1, which we covered last week, where the gang gets bad news about the Riverlands. So many of the chapters in Clash are longer and fuller than the ones in the Game of Thrones, but many of Arya's are kind of on the smaller side. She has a lot of chapters in this book, but you know they're kind of spread out a bit. Now, there's a lot of them early in the book, and then a lot of them at the end, and then not as many in the middle. But they're important, despite you know this, this difference of style and they can pack a major punch while being small, like Arya herself. The first line of this chapter is, quote, The road was little more than two ruts through the weeds. That opening line makes me think of Jaehaerys Targaryen, who noted that far too many roads all around Westeros fit that description, and that's where the King's Road came from. And this tells us that they're not on the King's Road, because the King's Road is, well, it's a lot more than two ruts through the weeds. Since that run-in with the gold cloaks, Yorin moved them off the King's Road because if they stayed on the King's Road, well, they'd be pretty easy to find. And instead, he's on these side roads. He's having them go around the God's Eye, which is the longer way, much longer, but also the far more likely to be free of gold cloaks way. So, you know, makes sense. Unfortunately... Taking this other route is actually more dangerous for reasons that Yorin was not aware of. Uh, For one thing, it just causes him to run out of supplies sooner, which that they kind of expected. But there's some irony here that there's two men going to the wall for poaching, and their skills are hugely valuable. And in fact, they continue to poach and steal crops and things like that. So just to be clear, poaching is just hunting, but illegal. Will, the prologue character, was a poacher, and he was really good at what he did. He was really quiet moving through the woods. It was noted that he was an excellent ranger. So a lot of poachers probably end up making decent rangers or great rangers in some cases. And one of these poachers is also used as a scout. Makes sense that he would have similar abilities in that regard. At one point, he sees this banner, quote, a spotted tree cat, yellow and black, on a mud-brown field. Yorin doesn't know what house that is, nor do most people. Even we had to look that one up, so there you go. And it was still not a house I'd ever heard of. House Myatt. Hmm. We have no individual names from House Myatt, but they do pop up again as part of Tywin's funeral escort 
which may indicate they're direct vassals of Pasturely Rock, but maybe not. It's maybe your house might will pop up again. Now, this is also the chapter where the character Weasel is introduced, though for quite a while she's just called the Crying Girl. She's brought in with her mother, who is dying after losing most of her arm. Now, the crying girl, Weasel, is helpless, and she's projecting the fear expressed by the entire group. She's, you know, as a kid, she's not holding it in. She's just being a kid and expressing herself. Fear sometimes brings people close together, particularly when it's shared, and Hot Pie and Arya have that here. They have, they become a bit closer because of that shared fear. I think if uh, this were later in the series, Arya would have given the uh, half-armed woman the gift of mercy, perhaps, because she's, well, she's like that, and she knows that she's suffering, and there's no hope for this woman. Arya's skills, speaking of in the future, her skills are growing even without training, something that could matter quite a lot later. After she leaves the House of Black and White, uh, there's a pretty good chance that her training is never, quote-unquote, complete, right? You know, she just leaves. Uh, before she's done um, because they fall into conflict or who knows why, but it's entirely possible she heard, she leaves before they tell her she's done training. In any case, in this chapter, uh, the, the types of things she does really well are being sneaky and quiet, quiet as a shadow. And with all this talk of shadows, I hadn't considered all that much how Arya is included, you know, as a shadow. But that line comes up often, uh, meaning quiet as a shadow. Eight times in this book, nine times in A Game of Thrones. She seems to take it to heart afterwards and doesn't repeat it over and over to herself. It's like part of her rather than being something she needs to remind herself of. It only comes up once again in Storm and once in the Mercy chapter. This is the last chapter where it comes up more than once. It seems that Yorin's death is foreshadowed here. Not only is there the ending line of the last chapter where he says they're welcome to his head if they can get it off his shoulders, but there are multiple references to the sour leaf making his mouth look bloody. And of course, there's also just his decision to go into what I could call Tywin's kill zone, the area that he has told his worst men to, you know, raid and weave and burn. So Yorin kind of went there without knowing he was going there. So that's not good. Along with that ominous bit of the bloody mouth, we have what's been described in Catelyn 1, as I said, the getting the bad news about the Riverlands, which is that they find out that Tywin has ordered this campaign of devastation against the Riverlands, and they're seeing it here. Catelyn and Rob and them hear about it, but in this chapter is where they're seeing it. There's fires, there's lots of corpses, there's, there's wolves. And Arya's encounter with the wolves is a brief but interesting moment. As Yorin tells her, her kind is fond of wolves. And he means Starks when he says your kind, but we know there's a deeper meaning, which is that, you know, she's going to be a skin changer, though. That hasn't awoken in her yet, but mm, arguably it does awaken in her at least a little in her next chapter, which we'll be getting to at the end of this episode. Uh, so I'd like to think, well... We like to think that uh, Gendry, um, his helmet, it's kind of like his equivalent to Arya's needle. It's like a one thing of his that reminds him of where he came from. If It's like his, his past is kind of wrapped up in that. And uh, that's a great take. That's from Joe, Joe Buckley. Uh, also on the um, logistical side, 
we get of Ravenry, that is. We we know that ravens can't just fly to any castle they want to. A few of them can. There's a few. They're described as rare, clever birds like that. They have to be brought from castle to castle via cage, and then they can be let go, and they fly to the castle they're familiar with, no matter where they are. And we see that there are raven cages in Yorin's wagons. I assume they are going to Castle Black, but they don't get there. And, well, maybe there's other places on the way they were supposed to go, but it seems like Castle Black is likely. Uh, I wonder if this little bit is foreshadowing here. Quote. She remembered a story Old Nan had told once about a man imprisoned in a dark castle by evil giants. He was very brave and smart, and he tricked the giants and escaped. But no sooner was he outside the castle than the others took him and drank his hot red blood. Now she knew how he must have felt. Yeah. So the giants could be the Umbers. It's their sigil, and there are several Umbers around. But who would escape from the Umbers only to be killed by the others? I don't know about that. I I'm mean, just picturing Rick on. Yeah, Rick and, and, and the Umbers are associated in the TV show, obviously. Yeah. And not, and not a good way for Rickon. Yeah. So maybe that's what happens. Maybe Rickon is killed in the books. Rickon's killed by the others instead of the Boltons. I don't know. It's uh, yeah, possible. that's the first person I thought of for what yeah. it's worth. So it, it's 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 puzzling. I'm not sure if that's if it's foreshadowing or just, uh, you know, just, just a, a story. Just a story or, so that we don't think yeah. every single story has relevance in the series yeah agreed it does it we don't want to make something out of nothing but this could be something <laughs> so we'll have to keep an eye on how things play out later and if george uses similar language you know they talk about rickon's hot red blood <laughs> we'll be like hey that <laughs> we've heard that line before question from john hagee do you think yorin and masha heddle ever shared some sour leaf <laughs> hey good question yeah masha heddle known for her sour leaf intake and certainly yorin would have passed by the inn uh, her inn several times over his 30 years as a recruiter can we can we ship them as yasha <laughs> Mor morin morin yeah <laughs> morin <laughs> so yeah maybe they did maybe they did it's a misconnection it's a ship that never sailed <laughs> so shay noticed something pretty neat here yeah, here's a, a quote that I, I just think it's funny, interesting, whatever. And about Arya? When she was being quiet as a shadow, she could sneak past all of them, flitting out by starlight to make her water in the woods, where no one would see. Once, when Lommy Greenhands had the watch, she shimmied up an oak and moved from tree to tree until she was right above his head and he never saw a thing. She would have jumped down on top of him, but she knew his scream would wake the whole camp and Yorin might take a stick to her again. And obviously with the whole Night King thing, it's yeah. just really funny. With her being unseen as she gets around the others and up, no one up hearing high, her. Up high, it, it, yeah. jumping down. It's just, I don't think it has any real relevance, but it, it tickled me. I think it's a coincidence. I agree with you, but it is a great coincidence. It's really good. <laughs> I totally missed that. Ashay pointed that out maybe 30 minutes before we went live. So good timing there. Also, you uh, meant you, you grabbed this Rorge quote. Yeah, I liked it too. Rorge, the noseless one, only laughed and said, there's a hunter now. Lumpy face, lumpy head, rabbit killer. She does become a hunter, doesn't she? Yeah, she's, a, mean, she's a straight killer. She is a straight natural born killer. <laughs> so yeah, there's a hunter now. He's laughing at her, but well, who's laughing now? 
not roared she is dead <laughs> so that yeah so that one's a little on the shorter end like i said or that area chapter was what did i say about 21 minutes mm-hmm. so let's move on to a longer deeper chapter davos one the gang burns the gods aka the one with f lightbringer it's also the one where we meet davos's sons well some of them we also meet Saladur san and well the huge Crescent chapter is so huge in part because of how much it introduces, but this huge Davos chapter shows that there was a lot less, I mean, a lot left to introduce still. Uh, so you could say some of Crescent's burden is passed on to Davos. And you can think of that in a couple of ways because Crescent wanted to kill Melisandre and eventually Davos tries the same thing. So it's really kind of a similar burden, but that's not what I meant. I was referring to being the POV for Team Stannis, well, until they split apart davos you know stannis is going to head for the wall and davos is going to go a different direction and well maybe will they ever see each other again maybe maybe not i'm going to lean towards no but let's uh, that's getting ahead of ourselves the first line of davos's first chapter is the morning air was dark with the smoke of burning gods that is such a fantastic first line man it's so evocative and with George, of course, there's more to it. We, the thing, the burning gods themselves, we have things to say about. We have things to say about the smoke. I don't have too much to say about the fact that it's morning, but hey, everywhere they go, Team Stannis burns things, or in the case of Blackwater, when Melisandre, captain of the fire squad on Team Stannis, they're the ones who get burned, and even Melisandre not being there. <laughs> She's still captain of the fire squad on Team Stannis. So it's not meant to be subtle foreshadowing all this fire and stuff. It's, in, it's, it's blatant. It's said right out here. Quote. Pale flames licked at the gray sky. Dark smoke rose, twisting and curling. When the wind pushed it toward them, men blinked and wept and rubbed their eyes. Allard turned his head away, coughing and cursing. A taste of things to come, thought Davos. Many and more would burn before this war was done. Yeah, just in case that wasn't clear, he says the same thing in the Crescent chapter. He points out that we're going to all end up under the sea, like Patchface is saying, because from his perspective, Stannis is going to war based on Melisandre's prophecy, even though the logistics say it's a terrible idea, because as things stand right now, Renly has this huge manpower advantage, yet Stannis is like, yep, we're going for it, because Melisandre says so. So that makes his sense of dread really quite uh big (laughs) and it's worse because with that sense of dread is paired with the burning of the gods which you know davos didn't take the gods too seriously but they have comforted him and he's prayed to them a lot and they have comforted most of westeros which that part makes him a little uneasy too just the fact that his his king is turning away from something that gives most of Westeros comfort and relief and and it's the source of their faith. So anyway, George expresses this several ways, quote, The smell in the air was ugly. Even for soldiers, it was hard not to feel uneasy. It's such an affront to the gods. Most had worshipped all their lives. Yeah, it's a multi-meaning phrase there. The smell is ugly because of the affront, right? But also it's literally ugly because we're told there's many, many layers of paint and varnish, lacquer, whatever, on these wooden gods, and that would smell terrible. Well, let's keep going. Quote. The burning gods cast a pretty light, wreathed in their robes of shifting flame, red and orange and yellow. 
Septon Barr had once told Davos how they'd been carved from the masts, masts of the ships that had carried the first Targaryens from Valyria. Over the centuries, they had been painted and repainted, gilded, silvered, jeweled. Their beauty will make them more pleasing to R'hllor, Melisandre said when she told Stannis to pull them down and drag them out the castle gates. Well, geez, I mean, that is, there's this, it's one thing to, you know, change religions. It's another thing to just be so brutal about it. And the idea that these masts were carved from the first ships the Targaryens brought from Valyria, that, we're going to have to take a second on that one. That is a historical tidbit, and we don't let those pass lightly. So Aegon the Conqueror did not worship the Seven until the end of the conquest, until he showed up at the Starry Sept in Old Town and, you know, allowed himself to be crowned. Uh, and you know, part of you know, rulership, king building, empire building 101, you want to adopt the religion of your people um, most of the time in order to be a part of them, to have, you know, to have that connection, to have to share beliefs is a big part of, of being uh, an accepted monarch. So, but, you know, what about the fact that Aegon came to Dragonstone uh, you know, his ancestors came to Dragonstone 100 years before the conquest. So are we saying that these 100-year-old ships were made into the Sept? Maybe, uh, but 100-year-old ships aren't maybe aren't that useful anymore. Maybe, maybe they're just fine. But it seems that either this is a story, uh, you know, like an invention of Aegon to, to make his, uh, his family's conversion seem, you know, a little bit more authentic, but it's also possible that one of his ancestors put the Sept in. Perhaps some of them worshipped the Seven and built the Sept prior to Aegon. That's, it's, it's possible. But that's also kind of doubtful because the, one, the only one with the authority to turn ships into a Sept would be the actual Lord of Dragonstone, right? It wouldn't be one of the others. It wouldn't just be like the Maester or somebody saying, hey, you know what, let's, let's change religions here. Let's turn, turn the Sept over. You need, you need big permission to do that or to be the Lord. So it's not super likely that one of the lords prior to Aegon converted to the Seven because, you know, we probably would have heard about it or it would have been a bigger deal for Aegon to convert. I don't know. It's just not super likely. But it's still really fascinating to imagine the symbology uh, and the logistics of Valyrian ships being turned into statues of the Seven. First of all, the conversion from one religion to another. There's a lot of symbolism there. But if Valyrian ships are stylish like their castles, like picture Dragonstone with the gargoyles and the the manticores and the dragons and the wyverns and all that. I can kind of imagine that that's how they do their ships too. Maybe not the exact same animals, but they're probably distinctive. Maybe, you know, like the Bravosi ships have these uh, purple stripes on their hulls and Salador San's ships are extremely noticeable. Valyria was this big empire and you can kind of see how they might want to make it known their when their ships are sailing around, they want people to know it's Valyria. They want their presence to know to be known for, oh, here come the, the bosses. <laughs> so I can kind of see them doing things like the way they did Dragonstone, making really decorative hulls and things like that. So imagine these wyverns and gargles and dragons being turned into parts of these statues. It says the masts were converted, and I'm talking about the prows, but you know, I think we can imagine that the language is a little loose here. Did they literally mean only the masts? Well, maybe. What happened to the rest of the ship, if that's the case? I don't know. Anyway, burning these statues is truly just a 
it's a warm-up, pardon the pun, <laughs> for more intense burnings. Mel, in that quote, she says the beauty of the statues, all their gildings and, and jewels, makes it more pleasing to R'hllor, which is just, that's really dark. I mean, are, are, is she saying that beautiful, like beautiful living people are more pleasing to R'hllor? Is that, R'hllor cares how beautiful they are? I mean, we have precedent, well, maybe not precedent, we have antecedent for this. It happens again later. When Victorian burns those seven slave girls at sea, he, he comments on how beautiful they are and how this will be pleasing to the red god. And, uh, yeah, so that's what he's hoping for anyway. He hopes that this, that this gift is, is uh, received by R'hllor with happiness or with uh, you know, gratitude or something. So it's kind of strange, but... And and if she's all about, oh, the beauty of the sacrifice makes it better, then, well, what do we say about her burning the weirwood at Storm's End? It's not beautiful, that's for sure. It's gross. It's terrifying. Those weirwoods are, are frightening. So, I don't know. Melisandre says things. And, uh, yeah, <laughs> they're not meant to always be taken at face value. So we go from painted, jeweled wood to living weirwood to living people in terms of the progression of things that get burned. No people are burned in this chapter, but we see that some are getting queued up for that uh, reward later. Quote. Sir Hubert Rampton led his three sons to the sept to, to defend their gods. The Ramptons had slain four of the queen's men before the others overwhelmed them. Afterward, Gunser Sunglass, mildest and most pious of lords, told Stannis he could no longer support his claim. Now, he shared a sweltering cell with the Septon and Ser Hubert's two surviving sons. The other lords had not been slow to take the lesson. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's a pretty blatant lesson, right? <laughs> uh, and they'd have been even quicker to take the lesson if they knew it was coming. Like I said, they were queued up for burning. It's not clear here that that's going to happen, but we do find that out later. And it's interesting, the timing of it, because it's not on Stannis's orders. When Stannis sails to go fight on the Blackwater, Lord Sunglass and these two sons are burned on Selyse's orders. Hmm. So it's interesting. Selyse exercises a lot of power when she can, apparently. She seems to throw her weight around a bit extra when Stannis is gone. Like when he's gone from the wall, she seems to take a, a greater role and it's not pleasant. Her men are shown immediately to be aggressive and ambitious. It's them who come in and smash up the Sept and stuff. It's just, well... <laughs> They're, they're nasty. They're, they're encroaching, you could say. And, well, that just gets worse later, right? We have things like Axel Florent, who I'm going to speak more on him again later. But he's the one that, that threatens Davos, that you know, tries to you know, act like he's going to throw him over the wall. I mean, the walls of Dragonstone, not the wall. If we talk about the ceremony itself, it's, it's awkward, right? It's almost funny. It, it kind of is funny in a like a what the hell is going on kind of way. Stannis's cloak catches fire a bit as he's pulling the sword free. Mel calls him a warrior of light and a son of fire, but he's just uncomfortable and he's he's not comfortable with the fire. I mean, he's uncomfortable by the whole ceremony, but the actual heat of the fire, you're not, it doesn't look right. It doesn't doesn't add up to be a son of fire and to be like, get that fire off of me, <laughs> you know? And it just doesn't work quite well. So Melisandre is serious, but it's hard to take it seriously. She's yelling about the red sword of heroes, but the sword in the scene is de-emphasized and there's no description of where it came from or anything like that. It's just a, 
it's just a sword it would be, you would expect that if the sword were really that special there would be like a description of the hilt or anything it's just he just leaves it out which is in itself a big deal that's a suggestion by omission having and davos even looks at it and kind of thinks that well quote red the red sword of heroes looks like a proper mess <laughs> and then stannis walks off without it let, lets his squire grab it it's he doesn't show any reverence for it and so an astute reader i mean the first time i mean this time we know better already at least sort of but uh you know if you're going through it the first time you're thinking wait is this just a sword she stuck in the fire and claimed was special yeah, that is basically what happened, except there's also some glamouring, which, you know, that's the essence of Melisandre, right? We've talked about this so much. And it's not just Melisandre who does this. There's Euron, there's other characters. The idea being that she uses real fire and a glamour on a regular longsword. It's that same thing. Real minor magic exaggerated with tricks to look like major magic. And it's that whole trappings of power thing again. Melisandre's, she's showing all the trappings of Azor Ahai. She's got the comet, the dragonstone itself, the burning gods. And, but we're left looking at what happened with Danny and going, wait a minute, that was, that was a real thing. That was a buildup of t- several chapters, dreams, foreshadowing, suspense, all this stuff. And it's the epic conclusion to book one. This scene, on the other hand, it's out of nowhere. The idea that this guy, Stannis, could be a prophesied hero, it comes out of nowhere compared to Danny. It, it's meant to feel off. It's meant to be awkward. From the get-go, the idea that Stannis is Azor Ahai is supposed to be questionable. It's not supposed to be something that we find out later, like, oh, he's not. <laughs> it's supposed to be something you know right away is a bit of a, a fraud, but the puzzling part is why like melisandre has to know this too but then later we see her pov and she's not sitting here admitting to herself haha i fooled them all so a little more on that later uh, in this in this chapter but also more as we go through davos's arc uh let me back up a bit and talk about some of the azor high language that's being used through davos's point of view quote the old dry wood and countless layers of paint and varnish blazed with a fierce, hungry light. Heat rose, shimmering through the chill air. Behind the gargoyles and stone dragons on the castle walls seemed blurred, as if Davos were seeing them through a veil of tears, or as if the beasts were trembling, stirring. Mm, yeah, stirring. The allusion to stone dragons awakening. Veil of Tears is a reference to salt, dry wood, and paint causing smokes. You got smoke, salt, waking dragons from stone, right? And Salador San, though, he's there to, to make sure, in case the reader doesn't get it, that we question all of this. He calls the sword, the sword burnt, not burned. And he explains the Azor High prophecy, the full story of Nissa Nissa, etc., all that. And Davos is there to question that. The idea that Azor High is somehow a hero. He's like, if killing your wife is what it takes to be a hero, I don't have what it takes to be a hero. We know better. We know that Davos is very heroic. We don't know that necessarily at this point, but we know that later. And, well, we kind of know that at this point. We know, you know, we at least know that he's the, the guy that sailed into Storm's End with fish and onions. But 
that didn't make him a hero. Um, it's really more just his personality over time. You know, it isn't just one act here and there that he does. It's just getting to know him and realizing that he's he's good people. So it's interesting that fake Lightbringer is shoved into the mother's chest. Out of all the seven statues, it's the mother that gets the sword, which is perhaps in accord with the idea that Azora High stabs Nissa Nissa in the chest and she's his wife. Now, we don't know for a fact that Nissa Nissa was a mother, but she was not likely a crone. And married implies she's not likely to be a maiden either. So if Danny is Azora High and John stabs her, well, she's the mother of dragons, which is the, the first time the mother of dragons is said by someone outside of a dream <laughs> is, well, her first chapter coming up shortly. So we have elements of that scene here as well. Mother and Azora High, Nissa Nissa being stabbed, all that. So there's clues right away that Melisandre should be looking at Danny instead of Stannis for Azor High. And, you know, we have these two complementary conflagrations. <laughs> the pyre, Stannis and Melisandre's pyre and Danny's pyre. And, well, it's just the differences are huge, right? I mean, like I said, Stannis's pyre is, is out of nowhere from a literary perspective. And it doesn't seem like there's anything really magical going on. Whereas in Danny's case, it's blatantly, overtly magic. You have her surviving the fire. Talk about child of fire. Talk about son of fire. Well, she's daughter of fire, bride of fire. And yeah, anyway. So the idea that Mel can see the future in the flames, that is brought up here too, not directly. It's Axel Florent who brings it up and says, Mel Zondra can see the future in the flames. He claims he has the ability to. Uh, Mel later expresses doubt at this. And of course, I think nearly every reader agrees that you know, Axel is full of it. Uh, he's the same one who tries to bully Davos into backing his plan to making him hand and, and attacking Claw Isle. Uh, he's the one who says we should attack the Celtigars and, and make an example of them. And uh, he, here's his quote, though. <laughs> it's interesting, even though I think he's full of it. The quote is still interesting. It seemed to me as I watched the fire this morning that I was looking at a dozen beautiful dancers, maidens garbed in yellow silk, spinning and swirling before a great king. And you know, Aziz, I'll tell you, when I look into a fire, I see a dozen beautiful maidens too, <laughs> spinning and swirling. <laughs> so what that could mean, but you know, swirling and spinning before a great king, I mean, it, it sounds a little bit like Blackwater, but not because, you know, there's no great king at the end of Blackwater. It's, you know, Joffrey still. <laughs> it could be if we're all tying this all to Danny, because so much of this is of this chapter is things attributed to Stannis or this ritual that are actually supposed to be attributed to Danny a half a world away. So if this, if we think about that in light of this quote, well, maybe this is foreshadowing the burning of King's Landing, you know, maidens gobbed in yellow silk spinning and swirling is somewhat similar to the language used by George when Danny is staring into her great pyre. George gets really descriptive with fire. So maybe it's just the way he loves to describe fire. But he uses uh, anamorphic language, um, like the fire as a person, like these beautiful dancers, maidens garbed in yellow silk. He that kind of uh, device is something he uses for fire. And well, uh, something to think about for sure. I'm not, 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 and I don't mean the idea that Axel has prophetic abilities, but this could be foreshadowing for King's Landing kind of uh, indirectly. But heck, maybe he really is seeing things and he's just bad at interpreting them, not unlike Melisandre herself. Uh, Axel also is the guy that tries to get John to 
marry him to Val. <laughs> so this dude. <laughs> the letter itself, Stannis's letter to everyone. Well, it's interesting because, well, we see it's it's also part of the plot. You know, it's important to push this incest plot, the, the War of Five Kings forward, but it also gives us insight into who Stannis is. His his sticklering sticklering? <laughs> I made up a word. Him being such a stickler for detail and for being honest to the point of of uh, it being a fault and his correction on Jamie, you know, Sir Jamie, the Kingslayer, all that stuff. And, uh, you know, not calling his brother beloved. That is very insightful into Stannis' personality. Like, people aren't that rigid with grammar without it meaning other things about their personality. You know, you don't have people who are that grammar Nazi-ish without it saying other things about them. You know, no one's just a stickler for grammar and not other things. You know, not that they're a, necessarily someone who's a stuck up, but Stannis is going to be so stuck about everything else. But it's it's a great choice by George for how to display his personality. So there's a lot. I mean, not only is, uh, you, you can't look at all this stuff of Stannis being kind of a stand-in for Daenerys, like a, like a proto-Danny and not see all these other things they have in common. I could have done one of these parallel lives on Danny and Stannis. It's it's it stands out even more for the TV show because you know there's a full arc to compare. But even at this point in the books, there's a huge bunch of parallels. Similar lineage, you know, both believe they're rightful ruler of Westeros. They're both associated with Azor Ahai and the Castle Dragonstone. There's all these parallels of sacrifices and burnings and prophecies and similar prophecies. So. And if the show is any guide, they both interrupt their plans to take the throne in order to head north to fight the others. So that's a big one, too. But Stannis also has something in common with Tyrion. And I'm not talking about the Targaryen blood, but that could be something they have in common if Tyrion has Targaryen blood. Um, But, you know, that's not what I'm talking about now. I mean that both of them are aware that it's better to be loved than feared in cases like this, meaning when there's multiple claimants and you need to recruit men. But neither Stannis nor Tyrion ever expects the people to love them. They both think that that's never going to be an option for them. And, well, here's a quote. They will not love me, you say? When have they ever loved me? How can I lose something I have never owned? Right? He doesn't even consider it a possibility. He's like, no, they're not going to, they, they haven't loved me, nor will they ever love me. And that's pretty similar to how Tyrion feels. It's pretty similar to how Tyrion governs. He's just like, shoves that off to the side because it's hopeless. Like, well, I'm not going to think about how much they like me because that's a lost cause. And Stannis is similar in that regard. And they act like it. They don't, they don't mince words. They don't try to sweeten the pot or sweeten their words or to make it easier for people to deal with them. They just go with it. When Tyrion orders the chain to be made, which we'll be talking about next week, a lot of the armorers and blacksmiths complain that this work is beneath them. And Tyrion's response is just to threaten them. He doesn't, he doesn't try to cajole them or to say, look, we need this. It's about the war. He just tells them this is how it's going to be. He doesn't really try to make them feel good about it. He doesn't, you know, apologize for the stain on their honor or whatever. It, it's, th- and this is similar. It's actually worse. Like Stannis is here trying to make everyone change their religion. And he's just basically forcing it down their throats. He's not really like, look, this is why we're doing it Uh, here. You know, work with me. (laughs) You know, he's just like, no, he's not. There's no explanation. There's no uh, uh, compromise. There's just, this is how it is. Do it. Don't question it. 
John kind of does that too, frankly, with uh, some of his changes to how he runs the, the watch. He has good reasons for a lot of what he does, but he doesn't get consensus from his officers. He doesn't spend a lot of time making them understand his point of view. Now, back to comparison with uh, Stannis and Tyrion, they both see also firsthand from an elder brother and a younger one in Stannis' case, the power of charisma. So they both have firsthand knowledge of how powerful charisma can be while not having it, any of it on their own. Like Robert won a lot of following when people had to choose between him and Ares because people liked Robert more. But if it was Stannis versus Ares, likability might not come into it. it would, they would make their decision on other things. And the same thing's happening right now with Renly. Renly is winning tons of followers because he's likable, popular, handsome, etc. Things that Stannis doesn't have. Now, Stannis, as much as he's been around popularity and seen charisma work, he still doesn't fully grasp how, you know, certain normal people things, right? Like, uh, again, the belief in the gods. He doesn't understand what a huge thing that is to change. To him, the, you know, from his privileged position, he's, he does something that most common people would not have the audacity to even feel or think in the first place. He stops worshiping the gods because he's mad at them because of what they did to his parents. They don't deserve my worship. Like, that is not the attitude a common person has about the gods. You don't, it's not about what they deserve. The, the gods are just all powerful beings that get what they want. There's no negotiating with the gods. There's no, you know, being on level with them. And Stannis is putting himself, uh, you know, not on their level, but saying that he has a right to choose, which is not how worship generally is. If you believe in gods, you believe that you owe them something or that they'll kill you or do things because they're just so much more powerful. But Stannis is just like, nah, I'm not worshiping them anymore because they killed my parents. They don't deserve my worship as if his worship is something worth having. So it's, it's really interesting how he frames that, which is just something that someone who isn't a high lord would never put it that way. So I think that's, uh, you know, more, uh, yet more telling about Stannis's character and also just in a way that shows how distant he is from normal people. He's not, he does not understand commoners, just like Davos thinks about how he doesn't understand weakness and, and certain other things like that. Now, weakness is a normal thing. We all have weaknesses. I have weaknesses. Every, every single one of us has weaknesses, whether we admit them or not. But Stannis is the kind of guy that, you know, because he doesn't admit weaknesses, that is a big separation from him and normal people. Uh, so we, we, we touch on the, I want to touch on the Proud Wing story. And I think that there's a lot of great takes on the Proud Wing story out there, but I think I have one that maybe is a little different. I, the story is framed as about Stannis, but I think it's about Davos, about Stannis. <laughs> Let me unpack that. Meaning, the story is written that Stannis needed to move on. You know, he's, and he's framing it as, well, the Seven never did anything for me. They never brought me the power I needed. They haven't brought me the throne that I deserve. Maybe Melisandre and the Red God will. Maybe that's going to help me. Which is interesting, just to, as an aside, this is like the same thing Sam says, <laughs> but in a much more like milder tone. He's like, well, the seven never answered my prayers. I'm going to try the old gods. And, you know, at the, in the North, they're like, all right, cool. You're not making anyone else do it, so it's fine. So Stannis, on the other hand, is trying to make other people worship his, his new god. That's where the, the, the rub is. Anyway, back to that. He talks about how maybe I'll get power from this. Maybe this will get me what I need. 
So it's very utilitarian. He's thinking he's switching gods because he thinks that what it can do for him, not because there's some belief. It has nothing to do with being devout or faith or anything like that. In fact, Lord Courtney or Sir Courtney Penrose will call Stannis and his followers out for switching lords and gods, you know, like he switches his boots. (laughs) And well, it's a pretty good point that, that Sir Courtney brings up, but more on him when we get there. And so the reason I think this is about Davos, though, is think about that same situation of following something and it just isn't working. You love it. You, you feel like you, it deserves, you know, you have a connection to it, uh, but it's just not, it's not going to fly. Literally, Proudwing is not going to fly. Not very high anyway. Stannis is not going to be king, y'all. He's not. He's going to crown himself and that, at some point he's going to die most likely, and will not sit the Iron Throne at the end. He's never going to rule over Westeros. And if you think about Davos hitching his star, hitching himself to Stannis' star, if you think of Davos as having Proudwing, if Stannis is Proudwing in this, in this analogy, Davos is going to have to switch kings just like Stannis had to switch birds, you know, uh, because Stannis is not going to be there. Stannis is not going to be the one to, you know, cross the goal line, so to speak. And if the show is any indication, it's John he's going to switch to. That's the one he's going to hitch to. He's going to switch to John. And that makes, you can kind of see John being, you know, Stannis being Davos's proud wing and John being, well, his new bird <laughs> without a name. <laughs> Ghost wing. I don't know what you call wolf wing, <laughs> proud wolf. So there's a lot of, let's, let's move on from that point. But I, I think you missed it. It's brood wing. Brood. <laughs> Yes, score. That is definitely what it is. Broodwing. I need a second to get over that one. That's really good. So we also get uh, the the hint that Davos can't read here, which we know uh, if you, you know, as a first time reader, that's just a throwaway moment. But when you bringing up the Davos can't read is all it's like that line is just, oh, because it's, it's, it's wonderful and tragic all at the same time because you think of his wonderful scenes with Shireen and learning to read and how important learning to read is because it's what leads him to push Stannis to going north. I mean, that's a crucial part of the of him encouraging Stannis to win the throne, uh, to save the realm to win the throne. Reading the Night's Watch letter about, you know, from Sam, <laughs> that they're trapped beyond the wall. And uh, at least I think it's from Sam, isn't it? Maybe it's from Emma. I forget. Anyway, it doesn't matter. It came from the wall and it's, it's huge. So I think that's uh, it's, it's another great example of a tiny, seemingly unimportant line that's just massive. And of course, then there's, like I said, there's tragedy rolled up in that because, you know, you think of, it makes you think of Shireen. And well, yeah, that's no fun at all. And Davos thinks about his sons. He thinks about how his sons will one day be on the level with some of these other noble houses. He's thinking about how Lord Valarian and Lord Celtigar and these guys just wouldn't give him the time of day. Uh, well, maybe that's because watches hadn't been invented. But, you know, uh, he they think he's below them. And uh, he thinks that one day he'll be up there with them. And that's, that's kind of funny, right? <laughs> he's, oh yeah, hand of the king. He'll definitely be up there one day. And his sons as well. But he thinks of his wife and... He thinks of her in light of Nissa Nissa. And well, yeah, here we go. I love this quote. We talked about it already, but I wanted to get the quote in here. Yeah. When he thought of Nissa Nissa, it was his own Maria he pictured, a good-natured, plump woman with sagging breasts and a kindly smile, 
the best woman in the world. He tried to picture himself driving a sword through her and shuddered. I am not made of the stuff of heroes, he decided. If that was the price of a magic sword, it was more than he cared to pay. And that's just a beautiful quote. Very nice sentiments. Says a lot about Davos and about, you know, the idea of sacrifice. But also... Write to your wife, Davos, once you learn to read. <laughs> well, he does write to her in Dance of Dragons, but <laughs> you're right. <laughs> I'm right. It takes a while. <laughs> yeah, still. If, if she's the best woman in the world, she deserves more. Yeah, he can dictate a letter. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, and of course, behind the Azor High stuff, there's also just the concept of Valyrian steel and the price of a magic sword, because that is apparently what we here is part of the ingredients to making Valyrian steel. Not killing your wife, to be specific, but blood, blood magic. Apparently there is human sacrifice involved in Valyrian steel. Apparently it's usually slaves, but, you know, this all ties together and it's a big wow. And uh, It's fun to see the beginnings of all these plots and how George has uh, planted the seeds. One thing we know to look for in a lot of these first chapters is uh, the way George likes to give us clues as to not only how this book will end for that character, but how their entire arc will end when they have their actual first chapter period. So that's one thing interesting about this chapter is it's Davos' first chapter ever. So we would expect to maybe see clues for how his arc will end in this, ch- in this book, which we do. There's lots of Blackwater s- symbolism and, and foreshadowing here. So that's covered. As far as his eventual finish, though, well, that's why I'm talking about the Proudwing stuff. That's why I think maybe it deals with some switching over to John. Because show Davos versus book Davos, that may not line up as well as uh, some of the other characters. Davos, I mean, the fact that he survives and is part of the new regime and, and helping reform Westeros, I can see that. But it's not like he does anything on the show that's like vital to that after you know all the dust settles. It could be done without him. So I'm not, so maybe they kept Davos around on the show because he's so damn popular. He was such a great character. I, 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 he's definitely one of those that I am not super confident about that we know what's going to happen to him in the books, which is a good thing. I mean, well, kind of a good thing. It's good because it's a mystery. It's bad because if he doesn't live, then we have to read about him dying. And that's not something I'm looking forward to at all. So let's hope he has a different story from the show so we get something new but that he still survives and gets to go to Maria and hopefully some of his sons are still alive at the end of it because we know at least four of them are dead by the end of this book. Uh, Joe Buckley points out that, yes, while maybe Stannis and uh, Tyrion have some things in common, there are uh, some things they don't have in common, which that's, that's clear, but, but specifically, Stannis thinks more about the small folk even though he's, he doesn't understand them as well. He understands the pressure of the small folk, and he seems to have more respect for small folk in seeing them as options for advancement. You know what I mean? Like Davos is used to be a, a commoner, and we see how other lords reject Davos because of his birth, and Stannis doesn't. So Stannis, while being farther apart from commoners in terms of disposition and uh, personality, he has more respect for their lives than people who in his similar position, or even people who are lower rank than him. And Tyrion doesn't disrespect the commoners in that way. He doesn't look down on them in that regard. I'm not saying he you know, holds them in high regard either, but he doesn't 
speak to them about the incest like Stannis does. Stannis's letter, a big part of it is making sure that everyone hears, not just the lords and the small, but the small folk too, to put pressure on the whole realm. And uh, that's also logistically, it's smart because it means that it's harder to bury. If you just read the letter, if you just hand the letter to a certain lord in a certain castle, he might just throw that letter in the fire and no one ever in his region hears about it. But if you just go out there to the ports and to walking around the fields and the markets and just read these letters out loud, it's going to get out. There's just no stopping it. Uh, and, and interestingly, too, comparison to Arya. Arya is out there on the ground floor with the small folk, uh, is you know back and forth, is and isn't. Whereas Davos is actually our first real POV, sustained POV, who is not a born noble. I mean, you can, you can say Crescent and Will are one-offs of that sort. But repeatedly, you know, every other POV we get, you know, from, even from the one-offs like Barristan and Aaron Damphair and Aris Oakheart and things like that. You could argue Melisandre was perhaps born a commoner, but she's so far gone from that and has so, you know, we're, we're only barely, we've only barely scratched the surface on her background as far as her being a slave. Um, so we don't know, her commoner stuff is it's too far gone. It's too, it, we don't know enough about it, and she's only had one chapter. So anyway, that's really cool. And Joe wonders, have we ever met anyone who's made as big a leap as Davos has? Uh, from flea bottom to knight, and then all the way to hand of the king. Even Littlefinger can't match that. Yeah, good point. Good point. I can't think of anyone else who's made a big leap as that, except for Sir Duncan the Tall, who arguably doesn't. It's arguable that Dunk doesn't go as far as Davos, because King, you know, Lord Commander of the King's Guard. You could argue that's not as as high as hand of the king, but Davos isn't actually hand of the king to the sitting king. That's the counter argument. So eh, we'll, we'll we'll call it a tie. You <laughs> could also say that like Davos maybe was higher or less you know lower higher than uh duncan originally oh yeah good point uh jade green fire of lightbringer interesting right that that some of the fire on lightbringer is actually green um it's not uh it looks meaning not that it is wildfire just looks like wildfire reminds us of that but not uh this early you haven't we've hardly heard of wildfire at this point in the story so it's it's definitely one of those catch on reread kind of things uh so mm -hmm. be on the lookout for that so that's just yet another piece of foreshadowing for blackwater uh will moss sort of the mid-afternoon about 3 30 super chat asks given that melisandre actually believes in the prophecy then why would she want to fake the fulfillment of that prophecy with f lightbringer so, actually, a couple people have asked about this. Uh, so, Will and the rest of y'all, um, this is directed for you. I think what it is is that she wants that once you have the apparatus in place, like meaning the apparatus, meaning uh, a population aware of Azor High and looking for this prophecy and expecting it to happen, it's a lot easier to say, oh, I just got one detail wrong. It's actually this, uh, rather than waiting for something to happen and then saying oh look here's the sign we were waiting for because if you wait for that sign the real sign too much time has passed you need things to be ready you need that to strike while the iron is hot so melisandre is building this apparatus meaning this this following for relore she's encouraging people to believe in it and she's doing anything she can to get that belief to, to, to plant that seed so that even if because once you're devout once you're faithful once you're a zealot 
we all know how this works. Think about how zealots work in the real world, y'all. You give them some evidence that there's something wrong with their zealotry. Does that make them not be zealots? Nah, that does not, right? That's not how the real world works. It's not how this world works either. Once people are that deep in the rabbit hole, you can't just show them logic and evidence to get them out of it. It takes more than that. It takes other things. It takes, well, it, it, Solis, maybe for Solis, it might take seeing her daughter burned or something like that. But Solis, I mentioned Solis because she's the one that brings all this to uh, Stannis. She's the one that Melisandre finds first. She's the Lysa, the weak-willed person that these ideas can take hold in and then spread. It's almost like a virus. Like the reason, you know, the reason vaccination works the way it does is herd immunity, right? And so if you find, a, but if one person, like one older or more um, or younger person that's uh, doesn't have the right antibodies, then they can become a carrier for that disease. And then it can start to infect people who are healthier. Well, Solise is like that carrier. She's the, the Relore disease haver. She has the virus of Relore. And uh, she's spreading it to other people. And it's a smart choice by Melisandre because, well, she's Stannis' wife. That's a, she's a really powerful person. But you got to think about it from her perspective, too. And this just goes to what I'm saying about how zealots don't use logic. Uh, this prophecy that she is foisting on her husband and everyone, this, this prophecy says that Stannis is Azor Ahai. Azor Ahai kills his own wife. What does Solis think about that? It's like, hey, husband, you're Azor high, And that means, wait, does that mean you're going to kill me? Am I Nissa Nissa? Hold on. I did not think this through. I mean, so she's already bought in despite that. <laughs> so telling, you know, if someone comes to her and is like, actually, Stannis is in Azor high, it's this person. Should, she can flip the switch to that instead because she's already bought into the concept of R'hllor. She's already bought into the concept of, of the others, all that. That's all going to be the same. If you change who the prophet is, all that other stuff stays the same. You still have the comment. You still have everything. So I think it's just that she's spreading that virus. Once that's spread, once it's there, it's hard to cure, even with logic, even with evidence. It just, it just doesn't work that way. So I think that uh, it's a clever way of, for George to play with that in this world, because that's a question people have been wondering since Clash Game came out. It's like, how could Melisandre do that? And it was mostly expected now, I say that this has been discussed since Clash of Kings, but it wasn't until A Dance with Dragons that people really started to, to key in on some of these ideas and narrow them down. Because for a long time, the idea was that Melisandre was just lying, willfully lying for some other end. Now, we still know she's willfully lying, but we, now that we've had a POV of her, that was the big change that we got to see inside her head. We know that she's just not, it's not a scam. She really believes all this stuff. She's lying for a purpose, but it's not some self-advancement. It's not her purpose, so to speak. It's, uh, she really does believe that the world is, is going to end, that this is needed. She devoutly believes that the darkness is coming, all that stuff. So, so that's a similar question was asked by Paul Berry on Patreon and a lot of other y'all. So I hope that answers it. And, you know, some specific questions like, well, how does she... You know, how did she decide to pick this particular sword? Uh, you know, isn't she, can she just make another Lightbringer sword? And yeah, it's just uh, people like Eamon who point out that, you know, the sword has no heat. It's just light. Well, most people don't know that because very few people actually get close to it. So she knows these things will work. Can I share a joke? Oh, yeah, of course. Koi <laughs> Vanazi in the chat. 
talking about why Celeste would go along with this. Yeah. They said, only way for her to get her husband's sword. <laughs> oh. <laughs> it's really good. Oh. <laughs> wow. She's like, now nah, he won't stick his sword in me. He never does that. <laughs> That's why she's not worried about it. <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> That's go. really good. That's yeah. really good. A, a plus joke. Good job, <laughs> Um, so let's talk about Davos's sons a bit. Speaking of being sacrificed to a greater cause, of course, no one knew they were being sacrificed, not even Melisandre, but you can say that they were sort of sacrificed at the altar of, of this, of this uh, quest for the throne. On the TV show, it's Mathos that we see, uh, and Mathos is devout to R'hllor, which is not the case in the books. So let's, let me settle that just to straighten things out in case anyone forgot. Davos's sons are not devout here. In fact, they complain about burning the gods. Uh, but the fifth-born son, Devin, is Stannis' squire. And he de- does convert, and he is still alive, unlike his four elder brothers. So, hey, maybe they should have converted to Rulor. If they converted to Rulor, they might still be alive. <laughs> nah. And the youngest two have not even been seen yet. Um, although, they might be captives of the Golden Company by now. Much of the Stormlands has been overrun by the Golden Company and that general area where they uh, where House Seaworth is said to have their seat. We don't know exactly where it is, but that general area has been overrun by the Golden Company. So that's we actually got a question a about that too from Minge Forever. Who oh, asked, we did. Okay, cool. Do you think uh, you know Young Griff's conquest will affect Davos's family and other people like wonder if Euron's would or anyone's conquest would affect them? I think this this one. I think that's a yes. Uh, it's hard to say exactly how, and and maybe Davos won't find out about it in order to you know it's, it's given where he is. He's not going to be receiving any messages um, directly from his home, but he might, surely he will hear about the Stormlands being overrun by the Golden Company and Aegon uh, at some point. Um, But it really, so much depends on where he's at when he hears about it and what else is going on. He may be besieged at the wall or, you know, running from the others in Winterfell by the time he hears hears about it and and literally has no way to leave, even uh, even if he wants to. So let's uh, let's take another little another quote here that's important. Uh, Shay is going to read about um, yeah. yes about House Valarian here. Lord Valarian was watching the king rather than the conflagration. Davos would have given much to know what he was thinking, but one such as Valarian would never confide in him. The Lord of the Tides was of the blood of ancient Valyria, and his house had thrice provided brides for Targaryen princes. Davos Seaworth stank of fish and onions and now that's ex- especially funny because well i mean one already davos is is, is stannis baratheon's you know confidant yeah. and he is actually of the blood of old valyria too but john snow who is half stark half valyrian which is about as prestigious as you can be if the show means anything davos will be a confidant for him too yeah so this is this is george using his clever uh misdirect where he's he think has a character think this will never happen for himself or he's thinking himself in a certain light when the exact opposite is going to happen so yeah this is this is when we look at this and we think what does this first chapter because it's the first davos chapter again i want to emphasize how important that is what does this chapter tell us about his arc and here you go this is talking about how he's going to rise high and uh i love it so it's also mentioned in this quote, since uh, we can't let history slide by without talking about it. Three princesses for House Targaryen via House Valerian, you say, eh? Yes, we do say, eh. So let's name those three. 
Alyssa, who is the uh, Alyssa Valarian, that's the wife of Anis Targaryen. So the first batch of uh, princes born uh, after the Iron Throne was uh, was formed were uh, were from a Valerian queen, and of course, Aegon, Rhaenys, and Visenya, their mother was a Valerian as well. So it kind of already ran in the family. Lena, as in wife of Daemon the Rogue Prince, as in she who flew Vagar, she was also, of course, a princess for House Targaryen. Daenerys, wife of Aegon III, as in uh, mother of Baylor the Blessed and the young dragon and the princesses in the tower, including Dana the Defiant. That is who we're speaking of here. And uh, also, Laenor, Lena's brother, was second husband to Rhaenyra. So, you know, and you would think that he would, he, he, they didn't have any kids, of course. Um, his kids were not really his kids, but uh, <laughs> the point being, he was a prince for House Targaryen uh, from House Valerian. So there's a lot of uh, marriages there. Now, Stannis's peculiar brand of willful stubbornness, we talked about it earlier in a different light, but here it comes up in what I think is a reference to what's coming for Renly. He's talking about Crescent's end. And he just, Stannis is normally really blunt, right? He says what, he says the truth. He speaks up. That's, that's generally how he behaves, right? But when he talks about Crescent, he just says he died. You know, he doesn't say he was poisoned. He didn't say he poisoned himself. He didn't say he killed himself. He doesn't, he doesn't speak bluntly about it. And to me, that might be uh, foreshadowing, maybe not foreshadowing, but groundwork for how Stannis is going to talk about Renly. He's like, when I woke up, my hands were clean. Would you call I it foreshadowing? What's that? Would you call it three shadowing? Three shadowing. Two shadowing? Two shadowing. Yeah, it isn't. You're right. It doesn't quite add up to four. So it's like, well, 2.5 shadowing. <laughs> a couple of, uh, quite another question. Ah, a couple of other questions from y'all, from Tree Girl. The Azora High story says he forged Lightbringer in a temple. And she wonders what God was worshipped there. That is a really wonderful question. I, uh, I, I, it could be R'hllor. Worship of R'hllor could be that ancient, but it could be you know, some other god that's like R'hllor that eventually they gave R'hllor a different name because of language drift and different cultures. And I don't know, but I, I think there's a decent chance it was R'hllor or at least R'hllor by a different name. Um, but I love that question. You know, I love any anything that makes me really think about ancient history and Westeros or Essos is just, uh, I give extra love for that. So good job, tree girl. Stefan B., uh, with a nice catch. He points out that Lord Celtigar is a bit of a lick spittle here, and perhaps that's a sign, because Lord Celtigar is the one that switches sides after the Blackwater, bends the knee to uh, Joffrey, and he's the one that Axel says they should attack to make an example of. Yeah. A question from Bronwyn Haller. Bron Haller. I think she means that the more valued the sacrifice, the more R'hllor values it. So clearly this is reference to the beauty of the sacrifice and how the beauty R'hllor will value it more, prize it more because it's beautiful. And, uh, and so she says, beauty is valued and the gems and gold, the gold themselves are valuable. So thus they are better sacrifices than plain effigies. I guess because it's, you know, there's, there's, it's more of a sacrifice because there's more value in it. I guess I can kind of see that. Yeah, I kind of see that. Sure. Yeah, whereas like there, if let's say gems mean nothing in Westeros. Yeah. Let's say like they were meaningless. They were like rocks then they would not be as good of a sacrifice. Okay. It's not the gems themselves. That makes sense, I suppose. Okay. 
And here's a, uh, let's read the description to the seven here. Quote. They were all of fire now, maid and mother, warrior and smith, the crone with her pearl eyes, and the father with his gilded beard, even the stranger carved to look more animal than human. Yeah. And I just like reading descriptions of little things like the seven and descriptions of things in general because uh, George paints a very vivid world, but especially with Game of Thrones with the TV series, sometimes certain things are supplanted yeah, in, our, in our mind. One of the ones I thought of in this chapter was Stannis. They mm. describe his blue-black shadow of a beard, which not how I picture Stannis these days. Yeah. Thanks to Dan Horries for the super chat. And we have one final point to make. Ashea had another catch that I really like. There's a quote here. Had I stayed a smuggler, Allard would have ended up on the wall. Stannis spared him from that end. Something else I owe him. And, well, one son does end up at the wall. Yeah, not, not like yeah. taking the black, but still. Devin, <laughs> like we said, he, he he's Melisandre's squire, so to speak. Or Stannis' squire and ends up kind of being Melisandre's squire because Melisandre asks for Devin to stay behind at the wall. So, there you go. <laughs> That's pretty cool. All right. Let us move on to the other of the long chapters of this batch, the... Other three after are varying lengths. John is short, Danny is pretty long, and Ari is medium. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Theon won. The one where Theon returns home, a.k.a. the Iron Gang prepares for war with the Wolf Gang, a.k.a. the one where Theon thinks it's all about him. <laughs> <laughs> yes. A.k.a. the one with Theon's Comet. <laughs> A.K.A. the one where Theon thinks he's getting casterly rock. <laughs> this dude, I swear. So while we say so many glowing things about Davos and how over time we learn what a great guy he is and how you can get a lot from his POV because he's honest, that's less true in Theon's case. The person whose POVs I think Theon reminds me the most of is Cersei. Because he's just so clueless about a lot of things. He's there's the same sense of inflated importance, the same uh, confidence. They're very confident. Unearned confidence, this smugness, this cleverness that really isn't that clever. Like they both are clever, but they're also naive and and missing a lot and and not and don't realize that they're missing a lot. Like a lot of us are humble because we out there in the world because we know we don't know things. But you know the humility of realizing that the world is a complicated place and that there's so many things to know and that you'll never know it all. People like Theon and Cersei just, they learn something and their response is, now I've got it. Now that's it. There's no more beyond that. <laughs> now I'm a master of this topic. Then There's never more to it. They always just think they understand. So this is the first of six Theon chapters before he gets his two-book break as prisoner at the Dreadfort. Now he, of course, returns and Dance of Dragons only to become a prisoner of Stannis. And he's a different sort of prisoner before all this as a hostage of the Starks. And so this is right at the ending of that phase of this life, meaning this 
first chapter of his. Quote, There was no safe anchorage at Pike, but Theon Greyjoy wished to look on his father's castle from the sea to see it as he had seen it last ten years before when Robert Baratheon's war galley had borne him away to be a ward of Eddard Stark. And even in this, even in wanting to see it as he had seen it before, he's being a huge jerk. Because the, the captain is like, this is a little dangerous. The crew is muttering that it's taking them extra time. It's just this waste of effort. And yeah, but Theon wants it his way. And this is, that's just, well, <laughs> that's a thing. You just keep going in that direction. Theon always just wants it his way. So like the Davos-Crescent combo, this is a long chapter because there's a lot to introduce. There's a new region. All the things that, are in, that entail introducing a new region, we get new culture. We get new religion. We get new characters. And that's always a lot with George because he's not going to stint on the details and we wouldn't want him to. A pox on those who wish for less. And of course, it's not just about dropping a bunch of world building because that would be, well, it wouldn't be boring to us, but it wouldn't make for as popular of a story if he just does that all the time. George has just such a great job, as always, of weaving the story and the world building together. So we're getting groundwork and set up while the story progresses. I love it. Some of the setup is, well, it's setup mode waiting for us to hit in, in a later book. In other words, some things are set up and immediately delivered. Some things are set up and have still haven't been delivered. For example, as cringy as Theon's interactions with the captain's daughter are, he mentions how there's a good chance she's pregnant. He jokes about fathering, about her fathering his bastard. And if that child does exist, that kid could have a claim to the Iron Islands or at least a place as Theon's heir. It's not like he can make new heirs after all. So that's actually quite relevant. It's another example of what we were just talking about with Davos. Early plot elements in his first chapter that speak to the entire arc, both the beginning, the middle, and the end, or at least one of those major parts. So first chapter's always juicy. So, and of course, the ship he's sailing on, even the ship, not just this possible kid that, of his that might be out there, the ship has more importance there. It wasn't allowed to leave so as not to spread word of the longship's hosting. So when Balon does die, this ship, the Miraham, does get away, and it goes right to Rob Stark in a storm of swords to inform Rob and the Northerners about what's happening with the, the death of Balon. And, well, he, he partly does it to get rewarded, but it also works really well <laughs> for us as readers. Theon has an actually quite poignant thought here, quote, the Iron Islands lived in the past. The present was too hard and bitter to be born. Besides, his fathers and uncles were old, and the old lords were like that. They took their dusty feuds to the grave, forgetting nothing and forgiving less. That's a really apt description of his father, and it's a pretty good description for, say, like Victorian and Aaron and, and like the Ironborn in general. That's really good. Theon describes it well. But, uh... Euron, though, that's where he's wrong. Euron is not uh, an old, dusty guy with dusty feuds, forgetting nothing and forgiving less. No, he is a visionary, an evil visionary, to be sure, but he is a very different sort of man. And that's crucial here, too, because right away, his presence in the story is hinted at. We don't know at this point what George had planned for Euron, and it's not clear from this chapter either, but Theon's afraid of him. And Theon, with all his arrogance and, uh, you know, cockiness, 
it's a bit notable that he's a little intimidated by Euron, even though there's not much to it here in this chapter. But there is, to rereaders, there's more in this chapter about Euron than, than uh, first-timers may catch. In fact, a lot of rereaders wouldn't catch this either. It's pretty sneaky. Uh, so Euron, Theon looks for silence. Of course, it's not there. It returns the day after Balon's death, pray recall, and we know, we know why. And, uh, well, speaking of Balon's death and Euron in general, this line looms quite large. A thousand years before, the sons of the River King had been slaughtered here, hacked to bits in their beds so that pieces of their bodies might be sent back to their father on the mainland. But Greyjoys were not murdered in Pike, except once in a great while by their brothers, and his brothers were both dead. It was not fear of ghosts that made him glance about with, with distaste. Okay, so there's three sentences in that quote, and each sentence by itself has, there's something I have a lot to say about. So just the, first of all, the place he's talking about is the Bloody Keep, which is part of uh, Castle Pike. And that's a neat little piece of history from uh, the time in which the Ironborn and, and the River Lords were fighting each other quite a lot. The second sentence, which is this thing about Greyjoys were not murdered in Pike except once in a great while by their brothers. Well, Euron, we were just talking about Euron killing his brother, were we not? And then we find out that Euron killed two other of his brothers. So once in ever in a great while is 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 a maybe an understatement because it's uh happening quite a lot from Euron. He kills three of his brothers, and he's probably gonna kill Aaron, although that one won't be at Pike at least. <laughs> so technically that one's not at Pike. And he's setting up Victorian to die. He's basically uh put him in a in a position where he's likely to die. So Euron's kind of just killing off his whole entire own family. Can you imagine though Theon thinking about Theon and how he's who's standing up to Balon and how he thinks he can be king after Balon dies. Can you imagine Theon versus Euron? Like, that would not be much of a contest. <laughs> but I wonder what Theon would think. He's like, oh, I could take Euron. <laughs> yeah, I don't think so. And it's funny to think, too, that all what Euron's capable of and what Euron could do, if he got his hands on Theon, Euron would probably do to Theon what Ramsay does to Theon. So if you were to, like, skip several books and find out what happened to Theon, and find out what kind of a person Euron is. You might think it was Euron that did this stuff to him, but no. So, but in the, in the last line of that quote, he talks about ghosts, which is a, a huge thing because thematically speaking, these chapters around this part uh, of the early part of this book, there's lots of stuff about ghosts. Arya is eventually going to be the ghost in Harrenhal. Danny goes to Vase Taloro, where the Dothraki are afraid of ghosts. And of course, uh, like I said, with Arya... They're talking about Ghost in Harrenhal before she becomes the Ghost in Harrenhal, or a Ghost in Harrenhal. And Theon himself becomes a Ghost in Winterfell, which is the title of one of his A Dance with Dragons chapters. And related to why he's in Winterfell and why he feels like a ghost, there's this line from this chapter. He says he prided himself on keeping his weapons sharp. Ooh, his weapons, so he keeps his blades sharp, eh? <laughs> Ooh, that's a real sneaky one, George. <laughs> And not long after that, he thinks of this, quote, As a boy, he used to run across this bridge, even in the black of night. Boys believe nothing can hurt them, his doubt whispered. Grown men know better. Well, <laughs> boys believe nothing can hurt them, his doubt. So this is the, the, the Theon who goes to Winterfell thinking nothing can hurt Yeah, okay, yeah. Grown men know better, do they? Well, I don't think you're as grown as you think, Theon. 
it's just so easy to hate him and later here i mean easy to hate him here and later but it's not new because you hated him before his first pov probably and you knew that when you read this the first time and but looking at his transition from hateable to pitiable not necessarily likable but pitiable when he goes from a character who acts the way he does here to winterfell where he commits atrocities to the dreadfort where atrocities are done to him to the person who helps save jane pool only to be strung up in chains by stannis well I think what all that leads to is me just disliking his chapters. <laughs> They're just really frustrating in so many ways what, from being reminded of how terrible he was to how terrible <laughs> things are going to be. Mm. It's just this this sense where you read this chapter, you're just like, I want this to be over. Yeah. I know where this is going and where it is right now sucks and where it's going sucks. But to, to speak to that, and I kind of agree with you, but on another another point, I don't, which is that, we don't know where he's going like in the long, long run. Like, I don't think that he's going to, he's clearly not going to, you know, do a death charge at the Night King <laughs> in the books. He could like die at Winterfell fighting for the Starks, which would be a similar-ish ending. But he's not going to die at the hands of a character who's not in the books. <laughs> so, so there's a, like Davos, his arc has the potential to be a good bit different than the TV version. So I spent a little extra time thinking about this first chapter and looking for clues as to where he might end. You know, there's the whole Torgon, the latecomer story where, you know, he might, uh, since he missed the King's moot, that that might be technicality for them to play off of later legally. But it still doesn't necessarily take us to the end of Theon. That's just something near his ending. And it also doesn't speak to this kid, the Miraham, you know, whether he's going to have this kid or not. And it also doesn't speak to how this is going to mix up with uh, with Asha and how, you know, maybe if she becomes queen of the Iron Islands, like in the TV show, well, how does that work out with all this? Uh, well, it can't, exactly. So some things have to be different. So that's one of the things that I, while I agree with the Shea that there's a lot of frustration in the Theon chapters, at least we don't know where they're going in the end. We, you know, uh, the, the final end for Theon is, is still pretty hidden, I think. So that's cool, at least. One thing I don't think that's going to happen for him is that he'll, uh, well, sorry, one thing that, that could happen for him, even though it sounds kind of silly here in this chapter, is him thinking that he'll be king one day. He, he's thinking that the comet is for him. Well, that I don't think is true. The comet's not for him. And he's not going to get Cashley Rock. <laughs> Cashley Rock is a very unreasonable expectation. It's so silly. He's like, his own father's like, no one's ever taken Cashley Rock, son. He's like, until now, like, bravado can only take you so far, Theon. And he thinks how awesome it would be. He's like, yeah, Iron, the Iron Islands have never had wealth and power like Cashley Rock, huh? It's going to be great. <laughs> it's like, well, how do you get from point A to point B there, Theon? <laughs> you know, your ancestors have taken note of how powerful Cashley Rock was. You don't, you don't think maybe they were like, ooh, that sure would be nice. Yeah, this is the naivete. <laughs> but also, he's got these really interesting identity questions. And I think that is a big part of his ending whatever that will be, I think identity questions are going to be a big part of it. Clearly, his decision to attack Winterfell is wrapped up in these dual identities. It's partly, uh, partly just his, his, you know, clever planning, but also his naivete and his desire to prove himself to his father while uh, being angry at never being allowed to be a Stark. But also, he's impatient and arrogant and selfish and vicious and narcissistic. And he's softer than he thinks he is. 
Uh, I mean, you know, a chapter later, he's going to be wobbly from wine and stuff like that. He's, he's just not, he dresses up like someone who is an ironborn. He wants to look really nice and noble. He didn't dress that way at Winterfell. Ned Stark didn't dress like that. Ned Stark didn't dress all fancy. Ned Stark dressed pretty plainly. So he's, he's projecting an image that he didn't even learn from his other father. It's just all, yeah, it's all wrapped up in himself. I just think it's also really well set up, though, because these batch of personality traits, as abhorrent and frustrating as they are, they do really set up his actions later very well. He thinks of Patrick Malister, who is his friend. And Lord Jason Malister is like, not excited about those two being friends. And you can understand Lord Jason's perspective. It was literally Theon's older brother that that uh, Jason Malister killed for attacking Seaguard during Balon's Rebellion. There's a bit of history in this uh, chapter where they mention the, the great bell at Seaguard that rings to inform all the surrounding people that the Ironborn are coming. And that bell's only been rung once the last 300 years. Well, the fact that it's been only rung once in the last 300 years, not, not only does that speak to just how far gone the old way is, the thing that Balon's trying to bring back, like at this chapter, it's not so clear how old the old way is and how long it's been gone. But the history books and the f- books that come after uh, in the Song of Ice and Fire proper really make it clear the old way had been dying for a long time. The ba- Balon bringing it back was more of a stretch than we even first thought. It looked like a stretch, but the history books show that it was an even bigger stretch than, than we may have first seen. So, so the idea that a Ironborn and a Malister are, or that a Greyjoy and a Malister are friends is something that we as fans of peace should actually think is kind of a nice thing. But it's also not, uh, doesn't really fit the setting as far as an appropriate relationship. Lord Jason, like I said, killed Theon's brother and, and in a world full of blood debts, he's like, you know, it's not just the Ironborn, but like I killed his brother. <laughs> like that's, <laughs> Theon brushes it off like ah he he you know he thinks i care he doesn't know how crappy you know roderick was but still that's not necessarily a a selling point for lord jason especially because he didn't hear theon say that also mentioned here a really interesting choice of words patrick malister mentions this amorous young miller's wife he knows that they can go spend some time with it's a miller's wife that theon burns and mutilates well Sorry, a Miller's wife's kids that Theon burns and mutilates to look like Brandon Rickon. It's definitely a different Miller's wife, but the fact that he uses a Miller's wife in this chapter is interesting to me because that's such a big part of Theon's future. So I think that was an intentional choice on George Park's kind of nod to that coming. And speaking of that, one of those two kids that uh, looks like Brandon Rickon might even be Theon's own kid. But we'll talk about that when we get to those chapters later. So there's quite a bit of subtle plot work going around around Theon's bastards or possible bastards. And uh, you can see why this chapter is really worth pouring over for clues for his final endgame because I think all these possibility of having kids is is a part of that. And he thinks of himself as a stranger in Pike, which is true. I mean, he's he's hasn't been there in so long and he doesn't behave like an ironborn. He's he's like a faux ironborn. And while all the features are the same, you know, the rocks, the islands, the castles, the people are not. Their attitudes might be similar, but the people themselves are different. Uh, in some cases, they're very different people who, who someone he knew. Like, uh, the steward is a different person entirely. But Aaron 
is just a different Aaron. He, when, when Theon was taken away, it was party boy Aaron. And now he's meeting serious drowned priest Aaron. So that's a totally different thing. Speaking of, Aaron is also easy to dislike right away. I mean, who likes creepy zealot priests on a personal level? You may, you may enjoy his chapters, but no one like roots for him. It's like, go Aaron. <laughs> you know, I hope he, well, you don't root necessarily for him to suffer the way he's suffering, but you don't root for him to like come out on top either. Now, we, so we talked about Balon being stuck in the past. So like I said, it's, this is filled out even more through World of Ice and Fire and uh, his own father, Balon's father, Kellon, which is Theon's grandfather. Uh, Kellon was a ro- alive during Robert's Rebellion, and so was Theon. Just, you know, he died near the end of Robert's Rebellion, so Theon wouldn't have much memory of him, but he was around. But Theon may be aware uh, that Kellon was fairly progressive. He was more in line with Asha's way of thinking. Asha and Kellon would have gotten along pretty well. Meaning, like, the old way is done. Asha, the way she talks about the Kingsman, like, the way forward is trade and, and peace. Uh, but Balon's like, no, <laughs> bring the old way back. So, mm-hmm. Theon has memories of the end of the rebellion, like what it was like at Pike when the torches were coming and the walls were collapsing and his people were losing. He doesn't seem terribly troubled by it. I, I'm sure that the memories have an impact because he's having them. But he's being, maybe he's facing it with bravado, or maybe he's uh, compartmentalizing it. It's some little bit of trauma that he's not admitting to, uh, because, you know, a man shouldn't, you know, man's got to be brave and not show weakness. But this stuff affects him more than he admits, I think. So with the, uh, with the, with Balon kind of having, leading the Ironborn to this resurgence, I'm putting quotes, resurgence. It's, it's Theon and Asha and Aaron and Victorian. They're all swept up in it. Balon is, is leading them to ruin, kind of like Melisandre is in a, in a different way. They're all led by his bold promises, his aggressive vision, but it's bull because it's just not possible. It's just not going to happen. Euron understands that and co-ops the movement and takes it in a different direction. So, uh, well more on Euron much later. Uh, but it's so neat that George even includes that little bits of Euron in here, even though Theon doesn't know what to make of it. All right, some thoughts from Joe. Uh, quote from uh, Theon when he's talking about uh, how he may have gotten that girl pregnant. He says, quote, it's not every man who has the honor of raising a king's bastard. And uh, well, that's, I didn't think about the double meaning or maybe more than double meaning there in how Ned might have something to say about that. <laughs> yep, mm, indeed. And Theon thinks how he must never go far from the sea again. Whoops, should have listened to your own advice there, Theon. No, don't think about how Winterfell is uh, not so close to the shore. However, maybe Theon read that really old cover of A Clash of Kings. Remember the super, super old cover of A Clash of Kings that, that referred to, to the shores of the, Winterfell? Yeah, exactly, the shores of Winterfell. <laughs> so, well, Theon got his geography wrong. You can't blame him. You know, it's in print. <laughs> so, <clears throat> uh, very uh, heavy hints, something that Theon doesn't think about that, you know, maybe in, uh, kind of along the lines of him not processing his trauma is not processing the fact that Balon was willing to let Theon get executed. Theon, Theon's attacking, uh, you know, Balon attacking the north while Theon's still a hostage. The law says Theon should be executed there. 
But Balaam was apparently okay with that, or at least he was willing to pay that price. So Theon uh, hasn't wrestled with that realization that his father was going to throw him away like that. So my question to you guys is, not just with Davos, but again here with Theon, where does his arc go in the long run? Where is uh, Theon going to end? How is is he going to die? Is he going to have a happy ending? Is he going to... Well, he can't have a happy ending in that regard. But... uh, (laughs) So, because it's one of the ones I don't have strong opinions on. I, I only have opinions on some of the details, but not uh, how those details form a picture. Uh, more question from you guys and a few random thoughts. Uh, Dagmar Clefjaw is also mentioned a few times in this chapter as someone that Theon uh, is, wants to see again. And we learn later it's that Dagmar was one of the few people that, that was good to Theon growing up. So Theon, uh, it's a rare thing for Theon to have like a, person who's close to him that was actually treated him nicely growing up um, as awful as theon is that's something to consider is that his upbringing was mostly people being awful to him his brothers his father his uncles dagmer is the one exception here uh theon also thinks how when he's thinking about john and john's da- john's personality how theon how uh, rather how john is quick to take insult <laughs> whereas theon has just taken insult over really minor things. Like Theon gets upset with Aaron for not telling him Balon's invasion plans. He's like, I am the heir. How dare you not tell me the plan? He's like, Balon told me not to tell anyone. He's like, but that shouldn't include me. Blah, 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 blah. It's like, hello, quick to take insult. Uh. Um, also, Balon mentions the iron price. We hadn't really learned what the iron price was. He pulls Theon's gold necklace off, throws it in the brazier. Um, talks about how giving a crown is not how it's going to work. And he talks about Euron Redhand and how Euron Redhand seized power at the King's Moot so long ago. Well, Euron Redhand did it by killing everyone, but Euron Greyjoy seized power at the King's Moot through a different sort of trick and uh, is certainly unleashing himself on the Seven Kingdoms in a bloody way. So that is also probably a little bit of a nod to the future of Euron's plot right here in at the end of Theon's first chapter. All right. Let us move on. Daenerys won. The gang hits the Red Waste, a.k.a. the one with the City of Bones. It's the one with the story of Lyness Hightower, Jorah's ex, and the one with the three wise men and women from Karth and lots of other cool stuff. Quote, the Dothraki named the comet Sherakia, the Bleeding Star. Mm. Another cool name for the comet. It's got lots of neat names. After an epic ending in A Game of Thrones, there's no immediate payoff from Daenerys. It's a while before we get this chapter. But that makes sense because the dragons are tiny. Danny has very few people with her. Although she, do have, she does have some very cool new nicknames, Mother Dragons and The Unburnt. But she's in danger. And again, The Unburnt. Whereas Stannis is like, ah, it's burning, you know, like, hello. <laughs> Danny's in danger, doesn't have a, a surefire place to go, but she's confident because of the comet and her dragons and because, well, she's a confident person. And a lot of her earliest chapters in the Game of Thrones d- deal with her developing that confidence and that sense of destiny. And here, this is like the payoff, sort of beginning of that payoff, because she was thinking of all these things and how she's this child of destiny and how all this stuff is going to work out for her. And then it does like she hatches dragon. She walks into a fire. So it's like 
proof of concept. It's proof that all these dreams were real. Still, as real as it is, that destiny is far, far away from where she's standing in the moment as of this chapter. She needs time for the dragons to grow. She needs time to gather followers, a real army. She thinks how she has probably only about four warriors among perhaps 100 followers. So instead of, instead of gaining followers, at first she starts losing a few. A horse is slain to ride with an old man who passes, and then a child, quote. Not for her, the endless black grasses of the nightlands. She must be born again. So this is another great example of George weaving the storytelling in with the world building. Throughout this chapter, there's a lot of Dothraki beliefs that are peppered here and there. Right here, we, we learn that they have some sort of belief in reincarnation uh, that for children, children only. And see, it's great. He's, he's, she's not saying that Dothraki believe in this and that. She's just has this thought that this is what's going to happen. And that's how we learn. So it's, uh, it's a good example of, uh, it's sort of telling, but it's really more showing than telling because it's, uh, it's indirect. So does she feel that way about Rago then? I wonder if she thinks Rago will be born again because he died prematurely. But in, in, in general... It's interesting. She doesn't think about it, she especially doesn't. considering she gives birth to dragons immediately after. So she might have been like, Rago was born again. Yeah, I think that might be part of it. And, you know, I mean, obviously, it's the whole Rhaegar is, is what Rhaegar is named after. But also there's Rago. Yeah. So I don't know. It's but she never thinks about that. She never specifically thinks, my son is reincarnated. No, you're right. She doesn't. I was wondering about that, too. And I think that it's, it took me to another place with my thoughts, which was that her beliefs are, she has a lot of Dothraki beliefs because she was with them so long, and she married a Dothraki person and had a you know, half-Dothraki child, almost. And she's moved around so much as a kid, she never really got to know Westeros. So she's just picking up pieces of culture here and there, but most of them are Dothraki. So... Yeah, maybe she just has a different belief for him because of her Targaryen side. or I don't know. But in this chapter, she considers growing a braid. She's got time to think about that one since, you know, her hair is not going to happen overnight. <laughs> so, yeah, just more and more cultural beliefs from the Dothraki uh, here and there. Uh, Eri is so worried about ghosts in Vase Taloro that she doesn't even think they should go in, which is a really big deal. I mean, they're losing people to starvation and she doesn't want to go into a, but she's, you know, doesn't want to go into this city that might have shelter. I mean, they're in a desert. People are like shriveling up, and she's like, I don't want to go in there because of the ghosts. <laughs> and Ego, when he goes out scouting, he finds two more dead cities, and one of them is ringed by skulls on pikes, and he, he says, well, I clearly wasn't going to go in there, and everybody's like, yeah, clearly. So these beliefs, it just goes to show how powerful these beliefs are, and that touches back on what I was saying about Stan is not getting what a big deal it is to change religions. You know, that's beliefs are these things. You learn these things as a child, and everyone around you supports them and says, Yeah, these are real beliefs. It is known. They say things like that. So it's really hard to, to break free from those beliefs. As for the dragons themselves, we see that their uh the, their bodies steam in the cold that comes in the night of the desert. Uh, that's a pretty evocative image, little steaming hatchlings. Oh. I've ruined it by calling them little steaming hatchlings. <laughs> so Danny figures out, though, that the dragons want their meat charred. And with that realization, they become the only creatures in her Kalasar who are not suffering. Food runs out. They start killing horses. More of the elderly perish. And Dorea does as well. She's a reminder of how much the show changed Danny's supporting cast. Massively. 
is what they did. They changed her supporting cast massively, and this is really the point at which that happens, uh, or at least you can say that that change kicks itself off. Maybe the showrunners didn't love the idea of, of Danny having 10 chapters in book one and only five in book two. So they, and they didn't also love the idea of, of uh, her being such a popular character and not being on screen a lot. So they had to invent some stuff for her on the show, which makes it ironic that they cut out so much of her supporting cast. It's like, we want to give her more screen time, but we're going to do that by, uh, by cutting out her screen, her supporting cast. So yeah, that's weird. On the show, Dorea was a scheming brunette who helps murder Eerie and Jiki and steals the dragons. But in the books, she's uh, a blonde lysine. Uh, in both cases, she dies pretty badly. Danny locks her in a vault with Zaro Zoandaxos, where she starves to death, and she kind of dies from starvation and fever in the Red Waste instead. But uh, it's still a big change because in one, Danny is executing her, and the other, Danny is, like, makes the whole Kalasar stop. To, to hold her hand while she dies. And that's, to me, like a microcosm of Danny's extreme passions. They really swing really far. Um, her range of emotion is huge. She has great, great depths of sympathy, just as she also has the capacity for just extreme brutality. Likewise, in the show, they, you know, speaking to more about her supporting cast, they, they gave her Recaro, but no Jogo or Ego. And then the actor for Ricaro was cast in something else, so they just killed him off. So no Blood Riders for Danny in the show, but three of them in the books, and they're all still alive at the end of A Dance of Dragons, so they're still around. Yeah, in the, in the show, she sends one Blood Rider off to go look, search, which seems kind of silly. I'm going to send one scout out. <laughs> Not that three is a huge amount, but it's a lot more than one. And Ricaro comes back headless. Oops. Not even that. They kill her horse off in the show in this equivalent of this chapter and in, in the scene that is sort of the parallel to this, this scene here in the books. So quick recap there. They kill her horse. They kill her handmaidens and her one blood rider. In the books, she still has those two handmaidens and Missandei added on. All three blood riders and her silver is still alive, kicking her fancy hooves. So that's going to, over time, cause even more divergences with Danny's plotline. So we'll, we'll, going forward, uh, we'll have a lot more to say on that here and there and what those differences mean for her arc. But right here in this chapter, the, a lot of, some of these characters aren't so big, but the Blood Riders are huge in this chapter because of their scouting. They find Vase Taloro, and then they find Karth. And then we see them in charge of building, uh, like restoring the gates and just work projects. They're just jacks of all trades, Blood Riders of all trades. So we have Base Deloro. Let's talk about that for a minute. Um, it's the City of Bones. That's a Dothraki name, of course. Base blankety blank is always a Dothraki title. It's almost directly due south of Base Dothrak. If you look at the map, Base Dothrak is in far north, whereas Base uh, Deloro is in the far south. So they're east of Slaver's Bay. Danny is almost as far east as she'll ever go. But that's going to be Karth. Karth is going to go east. And then she starts to go back west. This chapter, well, there's another reference to three for Daenerys. And it's also a pretty clear biblical reference. The story is different, obviously, but it has a lot of the same elements. So it's not the, it's not the three wise men coming out of the desert like it is in the Bible, because in this case, it's two men and one woman. And the, in the Bible, they're following the shooting star, a.k.a. the comet, whereas in this case... Jogo followed the comet. Danny says, follow Shirikia to the southeast. And in, in, in this case, the three wise men follow Jogo. <laughs> so 
So we have someone finding the wise man instead of them finding the messianic figure. And Danny and her dragons, that's what they want to see, uh, or they want to see them, really just the dragons and, and her too. Whereas in the Bible, they want to see this one baby uh, instead of three dragon babies uh, anyway. So you can see, you know, there's, there's almost certainly more biblical references in this chapter. I'm not the best person to pick out biblical references. So if y'all know some other ones, drop them in the chat here. Shay will paste them in the uh, Q&A miscellaneous portion. I'll read some of them out. I probably know Esso's history better than biblical history. So let's talk about that. Many of y'all surely want to know what we know about City of Bones and the two smaller cities Ego found. You might be wondering about those. And we do have some info. Karth is home to the last remnants of the Quathai people who were once great. They were once a really powerful, uh, wide-reaching civilization. But um, over time, they had fallen on you know, decline. And then the Doom of Valyria came. And that made things worse for them because that, in part, enabled the rise of the Dothraki. And the Dothraki came for the Quathai and other civilizations like the Sarnori and some others, like the Ibanese. Like, uh, for example, in the north, they pitched, they, it was the Ibanese pushed back. In the west, it was the Sarnori. But here, quote, In the south, other calls led their hordes into the red waste, destroying the Cathy towns and cities that once dotted that desert until only the great city of Karth remained, protected by its towering triple wall. Not only is it protected by its towering triple wall, it's protected by the Red Waste itself. Now, clearly, the the Dithraki are not too shy about entering the Red Waste. However, one brutal fact they learned is that what we see here with Danny is if you lead unhealthy people, not strong people, through the Red Waste, they're going to die. A lot of them will. And that's what happens if you loot a Quathai city and try to capture a bunch of slaves while leading them back across the red waste, a lot of them are going to die. So if you're capturing slaves for money and, you know, well, that's not going to work so well if the slaves just die. So we also know one thing, another thing we know about the Quathai, 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 I don't know how to say that. (laughs) I think if we say Karth, then we should say like, Coffee. We should have it Kothi. be similar to yeah, coffee. Okay. I, I, that's that's my thought. Is that, that you want sense. it to line it's up with coffee? It's not coarse, so it's yeah, not coffee. Yeah, it's not coffee. Yeah, so okay. I don't know. And the fact that they had cities in the desert is, you know, maybe like, oh, well, they were desert people. They weren't actually. The 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 coffee are so old that when they built those cities initially, they weren't in the desert. The red waste became a thing over time. You know, climate change. Uh, they may have caused some of that themselves with uh cutting down too many trees who knows but the point is the that's part of why the coffee were on decline in the first place because their empire was uh it was uh experiencing severe climate change uh we even get the names of the two smaller cities that ego found in the southwest uh there's three ruined cities in total by the way three ruined cities in total (laughs) there's vase orvik which is city of the whip and Vice Shirosi, City of Scorpions. I wonder which of those two is the one with the Ring of Skulls. I'm going to guess the City of Scorpions because, hey, keep out, scorpions. <laughs> Don't go in there. <laughs> There's bad scorpions. Uh, so when Ego was exploring these ruins, he probably didn't, but could have thought about the fact that one of his ancestors, or maybe several of his ancestors, were, were part of the hordes that sacked them. 
for a less grand but more directly relevant bit of history early on at Vase Toloro, while these guys are out scouting, Sir Jorah tells the story of Liness Hightower. I love the cross-POV world-building we get. Immediately after Theon's first chapter, we get Jorah talking about Balon's rebellion. But he's so rude, he says, quote, a priest from Mirror was the first man through. You can't even use his name. We know it's Thoros. Come on, come on, give Thoros his due. Especially if you're going to hang out with Thoros later in the book, which are the books. I'm not so sure that will happen. I'm, I'm a little doubtful because the way the show did that was a little weird. But it's possible. It's definitely possible. Because I do think the Brotherhood Without Banners will go north. So we'll see. We'll see. Jorah drops a lot of names, some of which we've heard before, but a few of which are new. Uh, one of them one of them is uh, House Went. He says he beats Lord Went in this tournament. But that lord has clearly since died because remember that Shella Went is in charge of Hall, and most of the Went family is, uh, is died out. Uh, so clearly this Lord Went has died since uh, he's not in charge anymore. Uh, but the other list of people he beats is pretty, pretty substantial. He beats uh, Strongbore, and it says he beats Boros Blunt, which isn't supposed to sound impressive because we know Boros is crappy. But Boros used to be a, a pretty good fighter. Like when Boros was chosen for the Kingsguard, he, was, he, he seemed to have at least deserved it, at least in terms of his martial prowess, maybe not in terms of his personality. So there's some subtle awkwardness here, though, as Jorah mentions the Hightower family. Uh, he talks about how proud and wealthy they are. And Danny says, oh, and they were loyal, too, right? They, my, my brother says that they stayed loyal during the rebellion. And Jorah's like, yeah, that's right. They were loyal to your father. <clears throat> yeah, which always, you know, since Jorah himself wasn't loyal to her father, he's like, yeah, about that. Mm. Let, me, let me just finish telling my story. Yeah, don't. Well, let's move on. He actually expresses remorse for being a slaver, which is a little unusual because before he just like spits at the, the name of Ned Stark as if as if Jorah didn't deserve the punishment. But that's interesting, right? So he's showing some remorse here, and and we know that he has a lot to atone for, and he has things to atone for that haven't come up yet in the narrative, things that we know about. But you know, this is Danny One, a Clash of Kings, so they're, they're they're yet to emerge. So, a question for everyone: Will Jorah take the black in the books, or die? in service to Danny, like in the show or something else entirely. He's another example of a character whose show ending is like, eh, I don't know about that. Dying in Danny's service. Well, yeah, I mean, I could see that. But at Winterfell while fighting the others, maybe, maybe, I don't know. That's uh, There's definitely room for a very different ending for Jorah and for the process and the route he takes to get there to be very different as well. For one thing, he's not getting darn grayscale, I don't think. Although that could be wrong, too. He just won't be, you know, patient zero. So despite being called a ghost, yet again, remember the ghost theme that we've been talking about? Because Jorah, they're talking about carrying their ghosts around with them. Uh, Liness is still alive. He, she, she refers to her, uh, he refers to her as his ghost, but she is alive. And so is her father, uh, Leighton Hightower. And so is Trigar or Mullen, the, you know, her... What's the word? <laughs> Conk is, she, she's his concubine. So she's, he's her lord, master? I don't know what you call that. Sugar daddy. Patriarch, sugar daddy. Yeah, okay. <laughs> That's what Ormalin translates to. <laughs> <laughs> so Danny, of course, is taken aback that Liness looked like her. And she has great intuition uh, you know, she has a lot of, she, she's still pretty naive about a lot of things, like a person her age should be. But 
that that's a distinction I want to draw. There's there's being naive, but there's having great intuition. She has great intuition, and over time, naive people can become not naive. But it's harder to develop an intuition over time. So she's flooded with realization upon hearing this. She's like, "Wait a minute, that explains a lot," and it makes her a little uncomfortable, but not too uncomfortable because Danny is confident. She's not like, "Uh oh." he's a creeper. She's like, oh, he's a creeper. Okay, well, what can I, what does that mean? Cersei tells Sansa that beauty and femininity are powerful. Melisandre demonstrates this on a regular basis, and they're right. I mean, that is true. So Danny is later being called the most beautiful woman in the world by multiple people. So she clearly has this power as well. I mean, look at her ancestor, Rhaenyra, who was, quote, the realm's delight in part of in part because of her great beauty and high status. Danny has all that, you know, in spades. I mean, many, many knights went full-blown Jorah for Rhaenyra, like asking for her favor or, you know, fighting duels for her. So Jorah is an example for Danny, not to be, not just to be wary of the intentions of men, but how to use that, how to make, to take advantage of that, how to marshal that into something useful. Like, well, because they both know, well, Jorah doesn't know. He still has, at this point, he's still hoping to hook up with her. At some point, he's going to realize that's never going to happen. So they both know that. Danny's out there knowing that Jorah wants her, and Jorah knows that, that Danny knows that about him. They both know it's never going to actually happen, though, so she may as well uh, put his energy to good use, you know, just like any king or queen would do to a devout with a devout follower. Like some swordsman comes up and is like, my king, I want to fight for you. He doesn't want to have sex with the king, but he's still like saying, you know, my sword is yours. The fact unless that Jorah's into Danny is, doesn't really change that. Unless the king is Duncan the Tall. <laughs> everyone wants to give him the sword. <laughs> or the lance. Yeah, or the lance. <laughs> In this case, right? <laughs> I would love to try my lance on you, Sir Duncan. <laughs> yeah, sometimes the innuendo is real. And yeah. And this plays out because, yeah, Danny is betrayed by Jorah and he has all this baggage, but Jorah is extremely useful to her. There's no taking that away. Like if you were to add it all up, Danny would have died without Jorah. He's, you know, he, he was, he's crucial. Uh, we can, we can criticize him a lot and I do. And he's creepy and, and, and he's a slaver, but he is a gray character. <laughs> and Danny is, I wonder his arc too. Like I said, we wonder how he's going to end. Is Danny going to forgive him like she does in the show? Probably, but not a sure thing. Now, Jorah also has some great lines. He has some awful lines, too, some creepy lines. But this one is awesome. And I think it's maybe even a central theme to A Song of Ice and Fire. Quote. My handmaids say there are ghosts here. There are ghosts everywhere, Sir Jorah said softly. We carry them with us wherever we go. Yeah. How does that nail the ghost theme so well? Danny thinks that hers are Rego or Drogo and Viserys. John, Ned, Tyrion, Cat, Theon, they all have ghosts too. The younger POVs have them less. They're less ghosts for them to have developed over time, but they all at least have Ned now. At least, at least they have one ghost. <laughs> and John has Ghost the Wolf too. Haha, <laughs> good joke. And uh, yeah, so that's just a huge theme. They carry their ghosts around with them. You can never get rid of them. It's always they're always gonna be part of who you are. And that's a as true in the real world as it is in uh, A Song of Ice and Fire. Because we're not talking about, you know, boo-type ghosts. We're talking about metaphorical people in your life that affect you 
perhaps constantly, perhaps day to day, perhaps they just perhaps every once in a while it just rears its head and you feel that person's influence on you and you don't like it. Maybe you do. But that's this concept. And yeah, as George is trying to tell a human story with a human heart and conflict, you can't have that without people thinking about all the different relationships they've had in their life and how those impact who they are and who they're going to be. And we wonder too, I do not have an answer to this. Why did Leighton Hightower agree to Jorah's marriage proposal? I don't know. I mean, he was a lord and he did was a hero at Pike. But I don't know. Maybe, I mean, Liness kind of sounds like she sucks, right? <laughs> I mean, Liness kind of sounds like not a very good person. Maybe Leighton was just like, yeah, take her. <laughs> He's just like, get rid of her. I don't like my daughter. Take her. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, I mean, that's where I'm at right now. That's my only theory. <laughs> uh, Joe Buckley had a really good catch, and uh, it's another Jorah quote. Um, you got this one pulled up here, Shay? Yeah. Perhaps we are doomed if we press on, but I know for a certainty that we are doomed if we turn back. And that is a really good parallel to Danny's recurring if I look back, I am lost. In this case, if I go back, I am lost. But it's a really similar concept. And I'm, I'm surprised I never caught that before, because he's saying, if we turn back, I mean, that's the, the same phrase. It's like, if I look back, if we turn back, eh, it's not the exact same phrase. But yeah, that's a great catch. Good job, Joe. Uh, he also wonders from a logistical standpoint, like, how did Jorah and Liness get from Lease to Bear Island on their ship? That's a serious journey <laughs> that's really far and she wonder or he wonders if they would have stopped at old town because that's where she's from you know hey stop at old town but probably not because they're fleeing as fugitives you know and uh, they wouldn't want to risk a uh, word reaching old town because ned would also maybe think to alert old town given that he would be aware of who jorah's wife is anyway hell of a trip <laughs> i will say that um uh Nina shared a link, a thing she wrote about why Leighton allowed uh, Jorah to marry Liness. Oh, okay, great. Answer and yeah, I think Nina shared that with me before, and I forgot to read it. That's that's an oversight on my part. But hey, well, it's not going to be too late. So hey, everybody, well, check that out. The general idea is just about like the tourney reason, which makes okay. sense when you think about House Hightower's ancestry of Maris the Maid and Maris the Maid. You know, her hand was worn, it was won at a at a as a attorney oh first cool attorney, so there's remember. a little parallel story there yeah too. and so jorah's the champion of this attorney and he asked for the hand yeah all right anyways well it still could be that she just that hated his daughter but i think this is probably a better theory <laughs> yours is funnier <laughs> mine is funnier <laughs> uh <clears throat> so if we think about how this chapter could have gone uh if there had been a five-year gap that's interesting too because we talk about how danny needs time to build her for her dragons to grow for her people to regain their strength for her to acquire more people in the first place well that might have been a little easier to write with with time having passed but at the same time there's other things to do um also we get a, a little bit of foreshadowing at least groundwork for danny pricing her dragons to zaro zoandaxis and to the slavers later because jora says you know, living dragon beyond price. They're the only dragons in the world. So the phrase a living, you know, living dragons are beyond price or whatever comes up in this chapter. And that's basically what she says to Zaro Zaro Zoan Dax. He's like, she says, Well, you know, how many ships are there in the world? 
Because if you want to trade, you know, if we're comparing dragons to ships, and there's only three dragons in the world, then I think a fair price is one third of the ships in the world. <laughs> so she gets a little economics lesson from, <laughs> from Jorah here. See, I told you, Jorah is really valuable. <laughs> Another thought from Nina from before the live stream, she wonders if we may ever hear about Jorah's first wife, who was a Glover without a name. <laughs> From uh, the current Glovers, Robit and, and Galbert are, are running around, plus, uh, um, I can't remember the Galbert wife's name off the top of my head. She's not a Galbert by yeah. birth. She's not I, a Galbert I by want... birth, so she wouldn't know. She wouldn't she know said, this. Did she say she's not a Galbert by birth at first? I did, yeah, Galbert by but, birth. Uh, no, I want to see a she situation like where, you know, where, where Danny and, and that, that awkward situation with Sam and Dora and Danny. Yeah. You know, Danny had burned sam's family yep just the idea that like danny gets here there and there's this awkwardness of this northern family that has something against jorah <laughs> and in general people will have things against jorah <laughs> which i don't think is given enough to attention yeah that i don't think people are going to look very kindly upon him as a slaver and someone nope. who's turned coats and You're particularly right. in the north which is where danny's going it's a good point. Yeah, Jorah's like reacceptance into the North and the TV show was kind of just sort of breezed over. They you know, they did have the nice they did give the the nice conversation with with John and Jorah. I did appreciate that, but like the rest of the North was just like eh, there he is, <laughs> you know. <laughs> There's Jorah. Uh, there were some really good discussions on Danny's arc on Flick. Some of them were a little little too off topic from this chapter for me to 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 pull y'all's uh, to shout y'all out, but I just want to throw that out because uh in general because i thought it's thought it was really good you guys are doing good um also some more dragon stuff here danny thinks that if she was on dragonback she's thinking about how she can eventually fly on her dragons obviously they're too young for that now but she thinks of she could touch the comet if she could fly on a dragon and that's just like wow like what an idea i mean obviously she can't literally touch the comet but it's like it sounds like flying too high the conception of the idea of like Daedalus an Icarus flying too close to the sun and melting your wings and all that. It's ascending to heights, not meant for mortals. That uh, sounds about right for Danny. Like she's trying to, she's trying to go places that, you know, are only, you know, they're meant for the gods, <laughs> you know, just uh, taking on challenges that are too large for a single person, even a person that can birth dragons. Speaking of dragons, Ricaro finds that big dragon skeleton in the, southwest of uh vase Toloro and um or no south of vase Toloro and we wonder what that's well how that dragon got there it's a huge dragon so that's important you may have, maybe valeria had a had some sort of battle with the kwathai people the kathi people in this in that spot long long ago but that's a little puzzling that the bones weren't taken which to me says that the, the battle, this dragon died kind of in the middle of nowhere because if the bones were there, dragon bones are really valuable. So the fact that it's just sitting there means that, well, it means something. It means that someone, no one was able to grab it. So hmm, I don't know what the deal with that is, but the fact that it's in the middle of a desert definitely is, is, is relevant. Okay. I have nothing more to say on Danny One. As always, if we miss anything on a chapter, we can always get back to it in the next chapter of that character. So if you miss anything in Danny One, Davos One, or Theon One, which we're all in a row there, well, let us know and we'll circle back. We should turn back. 
But for now, let's go to John 2. John 2. The gang visits White Tree, a.k.a. the one where all the wildlings are missing. And hey, it's also the one where we meet Dolores Ed, the perfect antidote to the gloominess of these chapters. Fire may drive away the cold, but it's Ed who drives away the gloom. And ironically, amazingly, he drives away the gloom by being gloomy. Whoa. That's Can a I trick. Say real quick, um, there was some people, there was some discussion of your shirt this week. Oh, right on. And people were, and they were wondering about whether there's a theme in general. Thomas Papa said, um, based on the spreadsheet, he knew it was a band shirt. And so I wanted to give them a shout out. And that he, they also thought it was probably a reference to White Tree, that that's why you chose this shirt. That is correct. Good uh, call, Tommy. But um, if you want to look up, this is uh, Daryl Blake and uh, the Mance Raider tribute band. They're on Spotify. So I just wanted to give them a quick shout out before we get into things. Yeah, thank you to Daryl and his band for sending us. Yeah, they can't see the text on the shirt at all. Yeah, too too far. You lift it up there. They can kind of like see that there is text, but the colors make it clear. And now they can they can see the, you know, instrument and all that. Yeah. So So we've already quoted Ed because he's so cool. Uh, even though he hadn't appeared yet, this is when he appears, but we mentioned him in brand one because we talked about the dead dreaming and he, he you know, that funny quote about, oh, I, my gravestone is too is small. Why do I get such a small gravestone? The, the ground is too cold. That's just a sign of how great Ed is. And this chapter, like I said at the beginning, is on the shorter end. It's the shortest of this batch. It's only 17 minutes on the audio book. And fittingly, it has a short first line. White tree. The village was named on Sam's old maps. Yeah, but like a lot of other short chapters, there's plenty to say about it. Chilling name, White Tree. First-time readers read this chapter and are introduced to a lot. And it's creepy as they read through it, but to rereaders, to people who've been around the fandom, just hearing the name White Tree takes my mind places, and those places are scary. Hmm. Astute listeners like Paige Albiniak and Esther McGriff I pointed out that Aria, Danny, and now John have all had chapters with deserted places. Like kind of, it's kind of a theme of early in Clash of Kings here where there's all these like abandoned villages, ghost towns, and uh, and they're all abandoned for different reasons. One is you know, more about time, the passage of time and ancient conquests. One is fear of, of you know, here, fear of the, the, the others. And for in Arya's case, it's just war, human war. The White Tree Village is quite small compared to the City of Bones or even the holdfast Arya and company stay in. This huge, creepy weirwood has been here for a very long time. The Raven speaks up here to agree that it's old, 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 old. So it's only four hovels and they're all under the tree, which makes it sound small, but makes the tree sound huge because like, well, they all fit under this tree. Uh, So you wonder, indeed, how could the map, especially because we're told these are old maps, how could White Tree be on the map? Well, the name of the town. It's the tree uh, that gives us the reason here. Sam makes a great point when Mormont complains about the maps being old. He says, well, that's no big deal because the rivers and mountains and forests aren't going to change or move much or at all. And, well, that applies to this giant tree. It's not going anywhere unless, well, something like this happens, quote, Look at that face. Small wonder men feared them when they first came to Westeros. I'd like to take an axe to the bloody thing myself. But taking axes to the trees is what started all the trouble in the first place, right? It relates to why the others even exist in the first place. Probably. Meaning that 
the children may have developed the others to fight against the the humans and that it was probably in part because of the killing of the tree. It's also the killing of the children. So John notes the huge size of the tree, calling it monstrous great. And though he feels respect for it, the face scares him too. Mormont complains that Bones can't talk, right? And that they could learn a lot of what happened there if Bones could talk. But the tree, it could remember. It saw whatever happened. It saw the wildlings depart, and it heard them talking about why they're going to depart. Hmm, yeah. So John here, perhaps because of his latent warg talent that hasn't emerged just yet, or because he's devout like his foster father, or maybe some combination of both, he has a very strong reaction to seeing the tree. It's it's mentioned it's how, how old it is, but he thinks he can feel the power of it. And of course, first time readers are gonna be like, oh, it's just it's just the it's just the awe of it. You know, it's just like, wow, look at that thing. Yeah, I can feel the power. But knowing that he has skin changer abilities, that line that he can feel the power of, it takes on a whole different meaning. And of course, the two things here are linked, meaning uh, the size of it and the age of it, right? The size of the tree and the age of the tree are uh, linked. The fact that it's so old is part of why it's so big. Now, and obviously not all the oldest trees are huge. They have to have space to, to grow and get bigger. That's part of why the tree Atlantisport is so small, even though it's been there so long. And uh, But up here in the north, trees aren't put inside castles. Trees aren't caged. Trees are not chopped down nearly as often. So as John hands the burned skull to Mormont uh, that he pulls out of the ashes there, he thinks of the white that he burned. And we know there will be so many more to come. Mormont tosses the skull back into the maw of the tree. And that really makes me think. Because we understand that the wildlings burn the bodies of the dead so they don't rise again. They're like, well, we don't want whites rising. But why they're doing it in the werewood's mouth? Why are they burning bodies in the maw of this huge werewood? That's a little puzzling. I don't think we have any other examples of werewood mouths being used as crematoriums. We could say there's symbolism here, though. That's very clear. And I might miss some of it, but there's definitely some I can grab. I mean, symbolism is such a, such a wide, broad, deep river. Uh, but there's some that I think is pretty straightforward. The fact that these werewoods require blood and sacrifice, at least they did in the past. And we know that Craster's mother is from White Tree. So he's a guy who offers his sons up to the others, a man who, from his own perspective, is devout and, quote, right with the gods. So we have the concept of sacrifice and this kind of unusual tree where maybe more sacrifices have been done with a guy whose mother came from this town, kind of carrying on that tradition in a, maybe in a little bit of a different way, leaving children out for the others to take them. So like I said, there's a lot of ways to interpret both the plotting and the symbolism, but there's no way around that the sacrifice themes dominate it all, right? That's a big part of it, any way you look at it. The tree is not the only representative of the gods here. We also have the raven, perhaps a bit tongue-in-cheek or tongue-in-beak line here comes when John tells Mormont that Sam is teaching the old birds to speak. The old birds, <laughs> teaching the birds to speak. Quote, the old bear snorted. He'll regret that. Damn things make a lot of noise, but they never say a thing worth hearing. Sorry, Gior. Given how much the fandom has poured over your raven's words for 20 years or more, many of us would disagree. That raven says plenty of things worth hearing. 
if there were a triad of the old gods, like, you know, the Holy Trinity, it would be tree, raven, and wolf, right? <laughs> For the North, right? So, uh, and then we have tree and raven, so let's talk about the wolf part. We have John's best friend here in this chapter, quote. I was, nope, sorry. Ghost emerged from the <laughs> undergrowth so suddenly that the Garen shield... Oh, the Garen shine and reared. <laughs> Again, remember that Ghost is super, super quiet. So this is just another reminder that the horses didn't smell him or hear him. He just like, whoa, holy crap, there's Ghost. <laughs> now, Ghost can't be replaced. There's only one Ghost. But John can have more than one friend. And we hope he, you know, has some happiness in his life. And uh, he makes a new friend here. He searches one of the houses, one of the four houses, calls the house dismal, and we get, quote, I was born in a house much like this, declared Dolores Ed. Those were my enchanted years. Later, I fell on hard times. That line is so over the top. It's clearly meant to be funny. Like, you're not supposed to be like, is this guy for real? It's just so silly. But that's a good thing. I'm not complaining. I love Dolores Ed. And it's funny because Dolores Ed is a Tollet. The Tollets are land-holding family in the Vale. They're a noble house. So he could just, this could just be Ed being Ed, but it's possible he's from one of those cadet branches, the ones that don't have land. Like, like Lothor Brune, you know, like a member of a house that doesn't actually get the benefit of, of being in that house other than having a nice name. I mean, this is very much a George thing, a George line. I mean, he's talked about this story multiple, multiple times about Daenerys and about how he would look at that big house, at the Brady's, down on the docks and think that's what, you know, he could have inherited, what could have been his, and suggest the, you know, those yeah. are my enchanted years, you know, like coming from a noble house, cadet branch with no wealth. I feel like Ed is very evocative. That's a great point. You know, I never, I thought, obviously I'm aware of the things you just said, but I never applied it to Ed. I heard him tell this story so many times about the Brady Docks. Yeah, the Brady Docks. <laughs> yeah, it used to be Brady Dock and now it's City Dock. And he, of course- He's a Brady. To be clear, yeah. He's, by heritage, he's a Brady. <laughs> so, <laughs> the Brady Bunch. Yes, George comes from the Brady Bunch. Uh, so- I'm someone who gets a little annoyed by complaining and negativity. Maybe that's why I like Ed so much. He's a parody of complainers. People who complain as much as him while actually being funny. If you're good at complaining and being funny at the same time, then maybe you should consider stand-up comedy. Here's a quote. What do you think happened to them all? John asked. Something worse than we can imagine, suggested Dolores Ed. <laughs> well... I might be able to imagine it, but I'd sooner not. Bad enough to know you're going to come to some awful end without thinking about it aforetime. So that's funny, but also, like, is that what's going to happen to Ed? <laughs> Since he doesn't get his own POV, this is, his, this is his introduction, so maybe this is where we should be looking for the biggest clues about his full arc. And uh, We're going to get him as, as, a, as some epilogue POV thing, yeah. and it's just gonna, we're going to be like, oh, shit. Ed, and the whole time he's going to be like stuck somewhere knowing he's about to die. <laughs> <laughs> so they found nothing of value in the village or in that house, but John found Ed, a uh, friendship with Ed, and Ed is pure gold. <laughs> so since George frequently drops hints about a character's arc via that first appearance, well, 
we hope he doesn't have that awful end like he's quoted here. And I also hope he doesn't have uh, doesn't end as a white complaining about his gravestone, you know, because if he could be he could be one of those dead complaining about like, I got to march in this army as the dead. Like, I don't like who I'm I don't like who I'm marching beside. He doesn't have his head's missing, you know. <laughs> uh, but. In that joke, amidst this joke and this possibly serious ending for Ed that would make us all sad. There's a line that's pretty wise and should be considered. Quote. Why should death make a man truthful or even clever? Yeah, right? Why would it? Why can't the dead lie? I doubt John will lose the ability to lie when he's resurrected. I mean, John's a pretty honest guy, but I doubt it's just going to be impossible for him to lie from that point forward. Uh, And I doubt it will make him more clever. (laughs) Beric Dondarrion was already clever i don't know that he's more truthful uh who else is dead and telling stories i mean the, the definitely not lady stoneheart yeah she right she tells no stories she tells no stories at all so yeah it's an it's a poignant like line to consider with very broad dispersion across the story uh, across the series like yeah why yeah why would that be the case and and we wonder what's being set up with that if are there going to be more undead characters that have agency are there going to be more characters like Cold Hands who are undead but can actually talk and have memories? Yeah, Cold Hands could be lying. I don't know what he would have lied about, but, well, actually I do. He lied about the the pork. <laughs> he lied about kill, giving them a, a, a sow to eat when that was clearly human flesh. So we have examples of the dead lying already. Uh, we're also reminded that, you know, Aziz, oh, yeah, go most ahead. of the dead lie. Oh, God. (laughs) The ones who are cremated don't. (laughs) Yeah, lie down. That's bad. (laughs) I appreciate it every time you explain my joke. Yeah, I'm kind of I'm kind of denigrating it when I do that, aren't I? Like uh, accidentally because it's like it's a it's a bad joke if it needs to be explained. So I'm sort of acting like it needs to be explained. It did not need to be explained. (laughs) (laughs) I did it anyway. (laughs) That was a good joke. I was not trying to throw shade at your joke. (laughs) Speaking of speaking of shades or shadows, really, the point of of this mission or part of the point of this mission isn't just to figure out why people are running off and, and why people are why the wildlings are disappearing. It's to find out what happened to Benjen. And they realized that since Benjen would have found these villages, he would have also kept going. They know that Benjen would have wanted to find an answer. So they're going to go find the answer or at least find Benjen. And uh, some are more optimistic than others. Sam is getting less scared over time, for example, which is neat and interesting. But some of the others are losing their courage because they started off all bravado and singing songs. and But over time, their sense of dread is growing because of all the emptiness and they're they're not finding animals and they're like where did everybody go (laughs) and dywin a man we've talked about before a man who seems to know better than anyone he says something scared off these villagers and he's hinting at something inhuman something supernatural and he's mostly right but i think anyway we we're pretty sure the reason the wildings have left is to go join Mance's great army that's massing up near the Milkwater. But a big part of the reason Mance has an army, a big part of the reason he's making an army, is because of the return of the others. So indirectly, Dywin is correct there. 
A lot of people uh, in the chat and before the chat, uh, but before the episode, were asking, is that really the case? Is it the reason that the wildlings are not there? Is it because of Nance's army? And I think, yes, I think that is the answer. But again, the reason the army is forming is, and the, part of the reason Nance is having success doing something that's typically very, very hard, which is uniting the tribes beyond the wall. Well, the tribes have a good reason, a good compelling reason to unite that hasn't been there for most other generations of wildlings. Uh, other, like previous kings beyond the wall couldn't be like, follow me so we can not be killed by the others. Raymond Redbeard couldn't say that. Gendel and Gorn couldn't say that. They just could say, hey, join me and we'll go attack the Seven Kingdoms and get loot. Nance, he's a different sort of king beyond the wall. All right. Uh, so the idea that this... Um, tree the white tree is so huge i think I, I mentioned this a little bit but i just want to drive this point home a little more that even to john uh this is a point from joe um that i thought was really good that the north is not what john thought uh, that the the real north the true north is wilder and darker and more brutal and more supernatural than what he was brought up with and in the tree at winterfell is creepy and and telling but this tree is something else. And he's like, wow, <laughs> that is something. So John is learning that, and that's uh, connecting him to his, his own heritage in ways he did not expect. Now, uh, Joe points out something that I hadn't thought about. It's, it's extra annoying for the a Dance with Dragons version of John that everyone in this huge group, one of the purposes of this, of this mission was to gather intelligence about the others or something and report back. But because almost everyone dies, it's hard to convince the people who are still there, like Jano Slint and the other officers who weren't even on the wall when this mission was launched, that of the truth of what they saw. A lot of the brothers who didn't go north or newly made brothers just question the whole story. And they're like, sure, you ran into that. Sure, you did. You're all you were. You guys were killed. You guys did badly. And you're just making up stuff to cover your ass. And uh, if there were more witnesses, no one would say that. All right, some miscellaneous thoughts on this chapter and questions from y'all. The sheep line is really interesting because it's, it's familiar to something in A Dance with Dragons. Actually, not A Dance with Dragons. Yeah, A Dance with Dragons. So compare this line, those are not sheep bones, though, nor is that a sheep's skull in the ashes. Compare that to this one in The Dance of Dragons, spoken by Barristan to Resnak Mo Resnak. Hold your tongue and open your eyes. Those are no sheep bones. Danny realizes they are child bones. Danny uh, and John sees a smaller skull next to the one he first notices in the ash, and that one may be a child as well. So this is a little thematic connection here. Uh, the mouth of the tree has a lot of dragon feel to it it's like wait this is a it's white tree and it's northern stuff so why where's the dragon stuff well it's filled with ash and bone and it's blackened by fire and it's red with dried sap so you get the black and the red you get the fire with the ash the bone that's that's some dragony feel to it right i think so and maybe there's a maybe the tree represents john you know there's his heritage is the blackened by fire red with sap but the the northern heritage is more obvious there with the tree so I think that's neat. And, uh, of course, the death of children and um, sacrifice is obviously a big part of both of their arcs as well. So I think that's a 
connection worth considering? Y'all may have uh, more thoughts on that. Please share them if you do. Uh, Scott Wartman points out this this John quote, which is, uh, my Lord Father, believe no man can tell a lie in front of a heart tree. The old gods know when men are lying. Gior agrees with that and says his father felt the same. This uh, Scott points out that this line has additional meaning because we know green seers can just look into the past. They can just know if you're lying. They don't know in the moment, but they can see the past to verify whether these words are true or not. So it's not like a lie detector test where they can detect physiological changes in your body that indicate, you know, raised stress that show that you're lying. They actually can see the past. Uh, Stefan B. from uh, Flick had a great question or a great point about John or about Sam teaching the, the Ravens to say snow and relating that to Sam and the Ravens at John's election. Uh, just that one Raven says snow and then says uh, its other lines. Sam claims, no, I didn't, I didn't do that. But he may have had something to do with it. Or at least it's maybe it sets up the idea that George was thinking of doing that and was like, nah, I'll just have Mormont's Raven cover that for us. <laughs> so it's kind of a little, maybe, maybe this didn't actually happen. Maybe it's a little foreshadowing, but it did kind of happen. Maybe just not for the reason expressed here. Yeah, anyway. There are several other new characters introduced in this chapter, but because I knew this would be a long episode, I'm gonna set them aside and probably do a where are they now. That includes Otten Withers, Sir Malador Locke, Giant, Jarman Buckwell. I will point out the Giant has a moment that's uh, a bit like Arya uh, in that Arya has that scene where she's climbing around in the trees and no one hears her. And while Giant climbs around in the trees in this chapter, it's not that no one can hear him, but uh, he's um, doing it to, um, to, to scout. And uh, I don't know, it just made me think of it, climbing around in the trees, and, our, and Giant is really short. So <laughs> it just made me think of that. Okay, um, let us go onward. Our last chapter of the day, Aria 4, the one where Aria saves Jaqen, a.k.a. the gang kills Yorin. The Lion Gang, that is. Thus, it's the last chapter where Arya is on the way to the Wall. Uh, her path diverts from, from here. Sir Amory Lorch sends his raiders against this small band of the Night's Watch, and it's a slaughter. But it starts off with such a nice, pleasant-sounding line. The river was a blue-green ribbon shining in the morning sun. Yep. As we pointed out during John 2, this is the third chapter in a row during A Clash of Kings where the POV character spends all or most of the chapter in an abandoned locale, right? In Danny's chapter, there's the Red Waste, and of course, that means very few living things until the City of Bones, and then there's very few living things there as well. In John's chapter, the Wildlings have fled from the others and gathered in Nance Army, and no one is in White Tree Village, and there aren't even any animals around. Here in Arya's chapter, they shelter in an abandoned town and hold fast. All the people are gone. All the, all the livestock is gone, so you still have that same kind of feel of the animals being gone, but for a different reason. They know war is the reason why so many of these places are abandoned, but they don't know a whole lot about what's going on with the war. Well, for example, Yorin thinks of Lady Went holding Harrenhal and how she's always been a friend to the Watch. Well, Lady Went is gone from Harrenhal, as it's come up several times this episode. 
Tywin Lannister currently holds it, and he is also the reason so much of the Riverlands is in flames and devastated, and why so many are fleeing towards King's Landing, and well, Tywin Lannister is not a great friend to the Watch. He's not even an acquaintance to the Watch, really. He's possibly an enemy to the Watch. There's some advanced world building for Harrenhal here, too. We know that Arya's going there, but they start talking about it now, obviously, with this talk about Lady Went. And some of the rumors are brought up, like talk of people going to bed only to burn to death in the night. And it's notable that, that Arya hears this from Old Nan, but Lamy and other people are telling stories about Harrenhal as well. So it's, it's, it's you know, it's a story that uh, pervades all levels of class in, in, in Westerosi society, I suppose. There aren't specific examples, though, of what happens in Harrenhal. They're all very vague, like burning ghosts and people waking up in their bed burned up, you know? But I actually think that uh, there's some historical precedent for what that burning story might refer to. Uh, Lionel and Harwin Strong died in a fire that started while they were asleep, while Lionel was lord of, of uh, Harrenhal and Harwin was his heir. Harwin was Breakbones, the, probably the father of Rhaenyra's uh, Valarian kids. So a tip of the cap to all the talk of ghosts in Harrenhal here, because... Arya's going to be that herself, thanks to Jockin, and that's thanks to her saving Jockin, which happens in this chapter. And, uh, you know, it's funny to think, um, even after she leaves Harrenhal, she thinks of herself as the ghost in Harrenhal. So that's a, that's a little one of her many, many names and titles that she picks up that sticks with her a bit. Also in this chapter, she's continuing to gather skills. Uh, in this case, she watches curs catch fish barehanded, and... She thinks she could do that because, well, it's probably easier than catching cats. <laughs> and this moment gives us one of my favorite out-of-context sentences. Quote, Fish didn't have claws. <laughs> Fish didn't have claws. Okay, that's true. So by itself, that's kind of funny, but you could also get creepy tinfoily with it and wonder if it's like a very, very oblique nod to the Deep Ones uh, or the, the you know the the darker mermaids that may or may not have claws or fangs and I mean it makes me think personally of House Tully and the fact that they weren't able to defend themselves. Hey, great point. <laughs> that's, part, that's just what it makes me think of immediately. Yeah, um, that's a really good point. Fish yeah, they're, are they're, defenseless. They're spread out. They're, they spread yeah. themselves out too thin. They're not. They're not a unit. Yeah, that that's a great point. A great point. Arya also shows um, just like. Danny and Sansa and, and John and all the other young characters frequently does something or expresses something naive, but also shows advanced understanding and shows like advanced intellect and, and talent. In this case, it's a, she's really good with her perspective for someone her age. She's understanding how things will look from other people's point of views, which is not something young people do very often. But it's very valuable when being a faceless person or when trying to pretend to be someone else, understanding how that person would behave and doing it authentically, obviously huge if you're trying to be a mummer. Uh, when she hears them yelling about Beric Dondarrion, she recalls Jane Poole swooning over him and what the Dondarrion sigil looks like. Then she realizes that, hey, if I'm Ari the orphan boy, I shouldn't know those things. Our Ari the orphan boy doesn't know who Beric Dondarrion is and certainly doesn't know what his sigil like would look like but 
here's where she's still a young girl and she's impulsive. And, you know, despite her advanced knowledge of fish and their lack of claws, <laughs> she just yells Winterfell <laughs> during this battle, which is, she shouldn't do that. <laughs> and uh, she gets called out on it later and has to kind of backtrack. I'm like, I didn't say Winterfell. What are you talking about? Um, yeah, no. And another naive thought pops up that's really worthy of Sansa's first few chapters. Quote, Arya could reveal herself to Lady Went, and the knights would escort her home and keep her safe. That was what knights did. They kept you safe, especially women. Ooh, yeah, about that. So this is a chapter that features Sir Emery Lorch. And at one point, Sir Emery Lorch says, young boys and old men die the same. He says that in this chapter. And he killed three-year-old Rhaenys Targaryen, and, uh, Rhaegar and Elia's daughter. So uh, he knows about killing young, uh, well, that's, this is a young girl, not a young boy. But he also killed a young boy, uh, a three-year-old boy, same age as Rhaenys, into a well, uh, the last Lord Tarback. Apparently he did that. And that was a long time before this. So in Sir Emery Lorch's knightly career, he did very little of, quote, keeping people safe, especially women. So, yeah. Now, in the show, he's killed by Jockin, thanks to Arya, uh, one of her three kills. But in the books, the bear pit gets him, thanks to Vargo Hote. So there's like this sort of circle of destruction sort of... Uh, theme going on here where Tywin deploys Vargo, Gregor, and Lorch and to destroy the Riverlands. And they do. They they shred it badly. But then what happens to Lorch? Well he's killed by Hote. And then what happens to Hote? He's killed by Clegane. And in both cases these deaths happen at Harrenhal. And in both cases they are eaten. Right? Like Vargo feeds Lorch to his bear. And by the way, Arya notes much later that the bear is black, like Yorin, and she thinks that's kind of satisfying. And uh, Clegane, of course, chops bits of Hote off and feeds them to him, to him, and to you know Manderly and some other people too. So, yikes! So that's just really—I don't know. I think maybe George is really making a statement about you know what happens when you rely on uh, that kind of strategy of, of destruction breeds destruction you know you you lie down with violent deadly men and that's the end you're gonna have too and uh that's uh really telling so Yorin maybe is a little naive too here not in the same way that Arya is and maybe it's fair to say that Yorin just hasn't adjusted with the times I mean He's been recruiting for 30 years, and as, as he said, he's only lost a few people, you know, all this time. He hasn't really had great issues like this. Maybe he was a recruiter during Robert's Rebellion. Maybe he was left alone during that war, so that made him think that he could be unmolested during this war. Maybe it's just the bad luck of crossing paths with someone like Amory Lorch. On the other hand, those gold cloaks were willing to start something with him, too, so... I think what we might be seeing is here maybe a shift in Westerosi society. Yorin remembers a time when people were more respectful to watch when they cared about it. And in, in, during his life, that has changed. So maybe it's not naive. Maybe it's just, you know, things have passed him by. Maybe he just didn't know that the world has changed. He didn't notice it. I can call that naive, but it's definitely not the naive of youth. 
Now, here's a line we've seen before under different circumstances, but I want to bring it up again. Quote. By night, all banners look black, the knight in the spiked helm observed. Mm, yeah, by night, all banners look black. We've had that in Tyrion's chapter two, and it, it makes us think of all banners are going to look black in the, when the night's watch, or when the uh, long night falls. And here they are, attacking the night's watch, the people that they should be supporting. Humans fighting humans. That is bad. You should be supporting the night's watch, let alone attacking them. Now, hot pie. Nowhere near as funny as Dolores Ed, but he's serving a similar role. He wasn't sympathetic at first. Not that Dollar Ed was. Dollar Ed is sympathetic right away. But quickly, Hot Pie becomes sympathetic. He's just a kid with a funny name, and he ends up being a huge fan favorite. Uh, because of him being a huge fan favorite, I don't need to remind you that he survived in the TV show and that he is still alive in A Dance with Dragons, as far as we know. So... Uh, let's root for that. Continue. Let's root for him to survive the whole series. Come on, Hot Pie. Let's go, dude. Earlier in the Valar Rerita series, I pointed, I think it was last episode, maybe, maybe not. doesn't matter. Earlier, I said that I think Arya's first full wolf dream is during A Storm of Swords in her first chapter, but you could argue that there's a snippet of her first wolf dream that you could say that maybe this is her first wolf dream right here. Quote. She must have slept, though she never remembered closing her eyes. She dreamed a wolf was howling, and the sound was so terrible that it woke her at once. Arya sat up on her pallet with her heart thumping. Hot pie, wake up. She scrambled to her feet. Quoth, Gendry, didn't you hear? By itself, that's not proof. But no one else heard the howl, and George uses some very particular choice telling language here. Quote, Ari had a bad dream, someone else said. No, I heard it, she insisted. A wolf. Ari has wolves in his head, sneered Lamy. Wolves in his head. Well, her head is would be accurate, but Lamy doesn't know that. I forgot how mean Lamy was, by oh, yeah, the way. Lamy's kind of, yeah, he's really mean. I really forgot that. <laughs> she certainly does have wolves in her head. Uh, we do call them wolf dreams, so calling it a bad dream is apt. So it's a good euphemism for being a ward, but it is also an accurate dream. As they are mocking her, she exclaims that something is wrong. Something is wrong. Someone is coming. And then the hunting horn sounds, which is uh, blown by one of their uh, traveling companions, warning them that, yes, indeed, Sir Armory has arrived. Did they just call him Sir Armory? <laughs> Sir Amory arrives and begins burning the town, as he had been ordered to do by Sir Kevin, who was in turn ordered by Lord Tywin. So, there you go. Now, the very annoying knight with the spiked helm, the one with the all banners look black by night, he has an annoying, he's also annoying because Roydo Trees gives him an annoying voice on top of everything else. Uh, he was stabbed by Yorin, then knocked off the rampart. He might have lived through that. I hope he didn't. Uh, and I doubt you get good medical care riding with Sir Amory. <laughs> but anyway. Uh, and she even thinks of uh, the Hound because of all the fires. Quote. Arya remembered the Hound's horrible burned face. Yeah, and that's, it's kind of, uh, out of, not out of place, but it's a, it's, it's not, and I wouldn't call it random, but it's not directly related to anything else other than the fact that there's a big fire. So this is maybe a little bit of groundwork for her connection to the Hound later. Uh, amazingly, though, Jockin will never likely know it, which is that Biter's screaming may have saved his life. Now, that's weird, right? How did Biter's screaming save Jockin's life? Well, Arya 
when she's going back to try to save them, she can't find her way because it's too smoky. But Biter's screaming is what she uses to to find her way. <laughs> so uh, Biter and Rorge, of course, show no gratitude to Arya. In fact, they show the opposite of gratitude. They're willing to kill her and, and do worse. But then they join the Brave Companions. So really setting them free didn't work out so well at all. Except Jockin does get them to help with the Weasel Soup incident. So that part did work out well, because that's how Arya gets away from Harrenhal. And it also just reminds us of how Jockin is dominating those two somehow uh, through methods we hadn't seen. They happened off page. Some sort of intimidation, perhaps. And of course, the this all fits in with her or him getting to see her bravery and her making use of her different senses. She's unable to use her eyes. Uh, she has to use her sense of hearing, which is, hey, she, she, that's a big part of her training arc when she loses her sight at the, uh, at the House of Black and White later. So all ties together, folks. It all ties together. Combine, combine. Connect those dots. Joe uh, Buckley noticed the same thing we did, that it's a beautiful opening paragraph for a chapter that turns so ugly. Uh, a couple people pointed out the dead soldier. It relates to them thinking they were tasting dead bodies in the water before, and now we actually have confirmation of that. And this dead soldier has a hank of hair tied up in a ribbon. A couple of, a couple of different thoughts on that. Uh, several different people had ideas and connections to that nina related it to all quiet on the western front i, I made me think of uh the maester uh i'm drawing a blank on the maester in pate's chapters uh the the raven maester who uh who um walgrave yeah archmaester walgrave who had uh when pate opens his lockbox finds a, a hank of blonde hair and um it's uh it's a neat concept the idea of it's not something people do that much in modern times anymore but it's kind of a neat idea of a, a hair being a keepsake because of the way hair lasts and uh it's a very human thing you it's a really like if you could put a single item in someone's pocket that would make you feel sad george chose well like a locket with someone's face that would work pretty well too and in fact he in the Walgrave example, there's a hair, there's hair and a locket, but a dead commoner soldier, probably not going to have a locket. That's, that's too fancy. So this was like the perfect sentimental item <laughs> to put on a corpse to make us all go, oh. I want them to like have a locket, which already the locket is, is difficult for someone like that to have, but <laughs> getting someone to paint a portrait, right? Yeah. Very difficult. So I want them to have like, Draw a little stick figure <laughs> of their beloved to put in their fancy locket. Get get Thomas Pappas on that. He's he's an excellent uh, stick figure artist. <laughs> Perfect. Captain Hema Hellman's Excel Sword Captain Stick Figure Artist. <laughs> uh, speaking of the taste of the bodies in the water, Joe Buckley points out that Arya is going to taste that again, but as Nymeria when she finds her mother's body uh, in the water. Aww. And this is the first time that we see Arya like killing people on purpose. Like she sort of killed that stable boy impulsively, kind of as a reaction, and he was attacking her and, and all that. So this is just, hey, we're people are coming to kill us. We got to fight back. And she handles herself pretty well. You know, she keeps her cool about her, and she certainly shows her bravery. 
Uh, and Gendry shows his true colors too. Hot Pie is a little is a little scared, but he sticks with them. And Gendry it shows his bravery too. He takes the he saves the crying girl weasel. And Yorin himself, on top of all that, he his last act is to tell Arya and the other youngsters to leave, to run away, to save themselves. And uh, Joe, as Joe puts it, there's a lot of Ned and Yorin, it seems. And that's a great point because we already talked about that. We already showed that Ned and Yorin had things in common and that Yorin is, that Ned and Yorin do seem to be cut from the same cloth. Ned and Yorin could have switched places at birth and turned into similar people because of uh, the type of person they are. Uh, Rob Swellze points out, oh, very, very nice. He says, Cat does claw her face meaning fish with claws. She claws her own face when during the Red Wedding. Wow, great catch. That's true. Damn, that's also very tragic. Abraham Gabeyu says in the next chapter, when she's trying to catch fish, she struggles and admits that catching fish is harder than catching pigeons. Good catch. I forgot about that. It's going to be a little I... hard to catch the blackfish. Yeah, <laughs> very true. Yeah, it's that whole, the, the light, the, you know, the water isn't, the fish isn't, isn't where it looks like it is because of the, the light being bent mm-hmm. by the water. Yeah. Edmure was really easy to capture, though. <laughs> He's a floppy fish. <laughs> Some people, a lot of people, actually, in the chat and in the Facebook, and I think on Flick as well, were wondering if Yorin led Alistair Thorne north, whether he was the one that led Alistair Thorne north. I would guess no. I would guess that Thorne took ship. Like, a lot of the higher-born people, they, they sail to the wall rather than marching the slow way. But that is, I'm not super confident about that. So, yeah, it could be. Uh, Abraham also points out the steel shadows uh, description with of the figures around Lorch and the quote death was around her and how this this battle has a lot of feel to something in the north where you have death around her could be you know being surrounded by the undead and steel shadows like the, the term of shadow is used a lot to describe characters who are, are helmed like fa- faceless I don't mean like faceless faceless men like the assassins I mean like we don't know who they are. Like you see a group of soldiers and they're nameless because we don't have names for them. They're just men in armor and weapons. They're often referred to as shadows because they, they have no personality. But it also works a figurative connection to things like the others and uh, the undead. And, and Abram also points out how Arya, you know, getting into the tunnel like the last second just as it's collapsing and how that kind of is a little bit similar to Bran getting into the cave at the last second as the undead are chasing him outside Blood Raven's cave. And how when the, the description of Arya is in the cool earth and how the worm, she gets worms in her mouth and she's like, oh yeah, but it's, yes, it's, it's tastes bad, but it, it means it's fresh and, and damp and safe. Uh, and Stefan B also points out that building on our, thematic connection to the abandoned places yeah the others are not humanity's only enemy humans are their own worst enemy and in fact which is a really well expressed here by pointing out that yeah all these abandoned places that yorin and aria and company are passing are abandoned because humans are fighting humans and uh yeah really good point and uh tree girl had a really good catch super uh deep cut here she points out the description of the inn that they're at and then it's really similar to the one in the mystery night particularly the mention of pilings out over the water which is uh you know how an inn or a building can be partly out 
over a lake, you know, uh, and uh, like half of the building extends out over the water. This could be the spot or near the spot where Duncan Egg took the ferry to White Walls. She expands on this idea by pointing out White Walls was taken apart stone by stone uh, when Bloodraven took it, and that the houses that Arya and company see nearby are all white. Yeah. So maybe they got this building material from the Taken Down Castle, some of it. That would explain why the colors match, and uh, it would explain the matching description as well. So that's a really good catch. It's a super deep cut there. I'm wondering how Rorge, Biter, and, and Jockin escaped because, yeah, Arius, you know, gave them the axe and they they cracked the, the carriage and got out of the carriage, but they did not follow her through the tunnel. But, you know, they're good fighters, so I guess they could have just fought their way out with a little smoke inhalation. <laughs> now, to put things in perspective, Gendry asks at one point how many there are, and Arya guesses 100, maybe 200. We know he was originally sent out with 300. Tywin says, you know, unleash Sir Gregor and send him... And Vargo Hode and Armory Lorch as well. Each is to have 300 horse. Uh, so maybe he actually had close to 300 there. But on the other hand, he may have lost a bunch of men on the way. Like we, he lost at least 10 or 15 or 20 men during this battle. So, and even though they were up against overwhelming odds, Yorin that is. So, you know, anyway. Uh, so it's too bad that uh, Yorin drifted off the King's Road to avoid the gold cloaks because they went right into this kill zone that Tywin declared for Lorch and Hote and uh, Clegane. And uh, we learned that back in Tyrion 9, which is the last chapter from the Game of Thrones. And um, yeah, I just lo- I, I, I had missed that before. I know I said this already, but I'm just my head spinning a little bit about how uh, Tywin's legacy is destruction and how even these men he sends out to do killing just end up killing each other. My uh I love to point out um funny little bits uh with the with the um with my ebook and misspellings. Every once in a while there's a weird misspelling. This was not a misspelling so much as two words out of order. It's a real quick quote. The boy hacked at his hands with the sword short until the man dropped away. The sword short. That should be a, a short sword. <laughs> his short sword. So what's a sword short? Oh, like a little knife? I don't know. <laughs> And our last question of the day from Rob Swellsey, our Swellzel. Sorry if I said your name wrong, Rob. Aria 4, I think, symbolically foreshadows the Battle of Winterfell during the coming long night. Endless enemies climbing walls, everything's on fire, and escape through underground tunnels. Yeah, we were. I was touching on that a minute ago, and Rob, I think, expanded on it really well here by specifically tying it to a Battle of Winterfell-specific location rather than me just saying some... I just was talking about some battle coming and how that sounds like it could be the Army of the Dead, but specifically the climbing of walls and escaping via an underground tunnel and uh, it being at night with lots of fire and shadows. Great catch, Rob. I agree with you. I think this is a a hidden gem in Aria 4 where I think uh, it's easy to miss and easy to not even be thinking about the Long Night or the North or, or John or any of that stuff. But this is why we have to always be aware when we're reading George is a sneaky, sneaky man. So how about that? Another really long episode. And some of y'all were wondering why we dropped to six chapters per episode. <laughs> and well, I will at least say that the early chapters in The Clash of King are, or Clings are longer than the later chapters in The Clash of Kings. So these episodes, while I, I know a lot of you aren't complaining that these episodes are long, they do, it is a lot to take in uh, within a week's span just before we drop another one. Um, so it's a little ironic that I'm telling you that we're doing seven chapters next week, (laughs) 
uh, on the, but I don't think it will be longer than this episode. Hopefully it'll be shorter. Yeah, this one is uh, longer than our longest one. It's now yeah. our longest. Very, very long. So we, when we get to, like I said, when we get to later in Clash of Kings, there's less groundwork, less setup, less foreshadowing, and more action. And we usually have less to say about action, but there's, of course, plenty more foreshadowing and groundwork and character connections and all that other fun stuff. So we will be continuing at full speed ahead. Next time on... Like I said, seven chapters starting and uh, or starting with Tyrion, Tyrion three. The gang is accused of incest, aka the one where Tyrion start the chain. Brand two, one where they hear about Ramsay, aka the gang meets Manderly. Tyrion four, the gang gets tricked on marriage alliances, aka the one where Tyrion counts to three. Sansa two, the one where Danto sends a note. AKA the gang, the gang, the, the gang drinks true wine. True wine. I love the way Roy Dotrice pronounces true wine. Aria five. The gang is captured by the mountain, AKA the one where Lamy yields. Tyrion five. The one where they argue about Marcella, AKA the gang prepares the wildfire. And Bran three. It's it's a back. It's Tyrion Bran. And it's at the start of next week, and it'll be Tyrion Brand at the end of next week. This one will be the one with the Harvest Feast, a.k.a. the Gang Meets the Reeds. So, I hope you all enjoyed our episode. Uh, if you were expecting it to be on Sunday, we apologize. Keep uh, Follow us on social media to be aware of announcements when we don't have the episode at its usual time. But I'm also happy that we got to do the episode at a time that enables some of you who normally can't come to participate. And I'm ready for us to do an episode in the middle of the night here so that we can really open things up to other people. We are going to do that. Yeah, that is a good idea. I'm just excited for it. You know what? You know what we're doing? Um, We're doing the, uh, like I said, the Halloween one is uh, on the 28th. That's a Monday. Maybe that's the one we could do later. Spooky. Like in Halloween late at night one? Yeah, it'll be middle of the day for people across the world. But regardless, that's the point. (laughs) Yeah. Won't be so spooky for them. We get a different yes, look at us, different Will states Moss, of mind in the middle of the night. We're at the regular time next week, 3 p.m. Sunday. Yes, we'll yes. be back at the regular time next week, 3 p.m. Eastern Sunday. And uh, like I said, um, probably another big one. But like I also, like I said, they'll start to get shorter as we get forward. And, uh, That's what they all say. That is what they all say. <laughs> I'm part of them all now. Mm-hmm. So. Oh, someone... Jaded Redhead said, it'll be a pajama cast. I love the idea that we, if we have to be required to wear PJs. We should be required to wear PJs. We should. It'd be real fun. All right, then. The PJ idea is cast. forming here live. I'll, I'll write screen. it down in my notepad because I, I do like that idea. Although, honestly, if you guys, like, if we ever panned our camera down to our legs, you would see that we're almost 100% of the time are wearing pajama pants <laughs> and just a shirt. Yes. And our pajama shirts are pajama. Yeah. Anyways, <laughs> we'll figure something out. I'll get Aziz a onesie. <laughs> I have a onesie. Oh, yeah, I guess so. It's that light blue one. Yeah, okay, so you'll wear that. <laughs> I've worn it once. This could make it twice. Yeah, Pat Riley says, can y'all dress up for the Halloween stream? So I can wear a onesie and a cloak. Onesie. Oh, perfect. <laughs> okay, uh, cosplay stream? Yeah, we'll, we'll think about all this. Perfect. So thank you to everyone who came. Thanks for the ideas about the cosplay pajama stream and all the other suggestions and comments from everyone who attended live. Thanks to anyone who spreads the word about History of Westeros. Like and share if you can, or if you're so inclined. You'd be surprised how much liking a video, upvoting on iTunes. 
iTunes comments. You'd be surprised how much that matters, how much that helps uh, trigger the algorithm or, or catching the algorithm. Uh, thank you to Ashea for wearing so many hats and having tentacles. <laughs> Thanks to Sir Buckley. Check out Isle of Faces podcast. These episodes are called Scraps and Scrolls. They are add-ons to our coverage of Valar Reredus. Thanks to Michael Klarfeld, a.k.a. Claradox.de, for the maps. And thank you to Kevin McLeod for the music, and as well as Jesse Kowal and Jesse Townsend. Sorry, Joey Townsend and Jesse Kowal for our original intro music. Thanks to our Benjineer for the editing. Thanks to everyone who commented. Nina, the History of Westeros mods for making all the great threads and discussions. Thanks to everybody on Flick. Uh, Abram and Tree Girl and everybody else, you guys are really adding a lot to these episodes, catching things that we missed. Quite a few this time. There's several that we missed this time that were, that were added in by y'all. Um, some just right before the episode and some well in advance. So join our Flick and face and or Facebook communities. And soon we're going to have a we have a Discord server ready to go that we haven't launched yet. So that's going to be up pretty soon. That was something I was talking in, in the chat with someone. I had no idea we would be decided between Discord and Slack. I well, it was kind of decided for us, honestly, because oh. one of our very generous patrons, Sir Pat Slorp. Riley? Yeah, Pat Riley is he goes by Sir Slorp. He He's the one it. I was talking to in the chat. Yeah, he just did it. He made it okay. for us. So I'm like, well, that kind of it kind of breaks the tie a bit. <laughs> I would like people to chime in. I, I don't remember who it was. But when we brought this up before, some people said they would not use Discord. They would yeah. refuse to use it. But I don't really remember who that was. I don't think there's any reason why we can't do both. I don't think we okay. want, we're not going to launch them both at the same time. It's okay. a little weird, but we'll, 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 we'll stagger that. Yeah, I wanted clarification on that regardless, because it was a while ago, and I don't really remember yeah. who well, or why. Well, we had a vote on Patreon and Slack won. So okay. we, we should do Slack. Okay. But this was basically given to us. I'm not going to just throw yeah, it away. No, I'm not going to okay. not use it. I didn't, okay. You know, so so we're going to, so I think we'll end up doing both. Because anyway. we have a, we basically have a donated Discord channel. The effort was donated. Okay, cool. And we'll, Slack shouldn't take much effort. But no. I'm not going to work on that while I'm, I have to do Denny's song. We have oh, yes. scripted episodes. I'm kind of like priorities here. You know? Yes. But <laughs> so. regardless, if you said anything to us, we didn't forget you. Yeah. We definitely. we forgot you. We don't remember your name who said it, but <laughs> we didn't forget the sentiment. <laughs> so that so if y'all have more thoughts on that, certainly let us know. You can email us at westrosshistory at gmail.com or join one of those groups and comment there. That way other people will comment on it. Because if you send us an email, then no one else will will weigh in. <laughs> but uh and Patreon as well. You can email us there. And thank you as well to everyone who supports us on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash historyofwesteros if you would like to sign up and help support the show. Um, and I think that about covers it for today. If you stayed for the whole three-hour live stream, we really appreciate that. And we will see you uh, all. Thank you, Aziz. <laughs> well, thank you, Shea. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, you got up for like two minutes to walk into the kitchen to... To, to I handle not, a loud cat. I, I I did not walk into the kitchen. I did not leave the room. Oh, you're right. You just opened the, the door. door and brought a cat into the room. So he would stop scratching at the door. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, folks, thank you again. And we will see you all next time for more Valar Reredus.